You know, the reason they, they like reading my stuff is that I've always got real-life examples to prove what I'm saying. There's a lot of good people that listen to this podcast. You know, other than God and my family, deer hunting would be next in line on my list of priorities. From the bottom of our hearts, it's it's just fantastic and awesome to uh, to have the support that you guys are getting. People ask me about expandable broadheads and love swings. <laughs> <laughs> Chasing Giants with Don Higgins and Terry Peer. Brought to you by Osseo Camo, nature's most lethal camouflage. Follow along as Don and Terry discuss the techniques, strategies, and dedication needed to harvest one of God's most amazing creations, world-class whitetails. Well, welcome everyone to Chasing Giants, episode 110, our third weekend of master classes. Don, we, we have Joe Miles up here right now. We're going to talk about him in just a second, but... Last week, we um, we didn't get to do a podcast with the Thursday night crew, and we decided to do one tonight and Friday night and merge them together into one massive long podcast this weekend. There's going to be some happy folks next week when they've got about two and a half, three hours of chasing giants. Yeah, so if you're watching on YouTube right now, make sure you smash that like button. Um, for our, our friends listening on uh, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, please leave a review, and for those who are on their phones listening on MTech, find a chair. You're going to be here for probably two hours tonight. At least. <laughs> probably longer than that. Well, well, Joe Joe Miles is with us. He was recently with us down in North Carolina at the Dixie Deer Classic. But, Joe, you're up here to attend the Master Class this week. Yes, sir. Always trying to learn. Who, who better to learn from than this guy right here? Well, you know, the, <laughs> the opener of this just said that Don gets asked about mecha- uh, mechanical broadheads and love swings, but, you know, I'm just going to kick it out right the mm-hmm. gate. You're a, huge, you're a huge supporter of mechanical broadheads, and if I'm not mistaken, you're doing some testing and videos that are getting ready to come out with some, some stuff. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we... Uh, Let's get Don fired up. Yeah, um, <laughs> I've, I've shot them for a long time and, and, and really like them. Uh, I've, I've had no issues... <laughs> Whatsoever, <laughs> he didn't I don't know. know. Don didn't no, know I was going to do that. I got something to, to throw on you here. Uh, I, I, yeah, we. I don't know that we want to start this uh, <laughs> right out the gate, but uh, so the testing though that we really do have coming out. We took some uh, some hog shoulders, some three hundred pound plus hog shoulders, and duct taped them to a box with actually uh, Jello inside of them. And we shot three different mechanicals through there, and not just one head, but three of each, just to see how they would perform and how they would hold up. Because yeah. that's always that's always kind of the, the the debate is they they can't go through shoulders and and bone and stuff like that. And uh, it, we'll have them edited and out next week, and guys can make their own mind. He's up. twitching. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> Joe came early this afternoon, and him and I filmed a great video, just a fantastic video. And while we were sitting there visiting, the idea was thrown out that Joe and I have a debate about mechanical broadheads, and we both agreed to have this debate. And so sometime in the not-too-distant future, we're going to each lay out our case for... Let people decide to choose for what they want. You know, we we got some hate mail, I think. Well, we get hate mail all the well, time, but that's we, normal for me. I never get any of that. You don't? No. Yeah, Lord. we do. Uh-uh. We're going to change that. You're yeah, gonna, you're going <laughs> to you hang around with us too uh, very long. And, you know, Dr. Strickland has to be very straight laced when he's on the podcast with us, you know, being from the academic world. 
But yeah, I'm not from the academic. Yeah, world. so you <laughs> can you can talk about liberals all you want on here, and uh, you can just join us with the long list of distinguished people that's banned from your social media page. Like perfect, us. Yep. perfect. So um, the reason I wanted you to come on today is uh, this is the first chance, at least for some of the viewers of our podcast, to really get a glimpse at some of the garments we got. Turkey season coming up. And, um, you know, you flew up today, but we, for the people that are here for the master classes, all of my camo and Don's camo is here. That's a lot of people's first time to get to kind of touch and feel Osseo gear. Um, last week it was pretty cool. We had people taking it outside and taking it from one tree to another to try to see how it blends in, you know, just like that owl did, you know, when yep. you started, it. it was pretty cool for people to see it for the first time. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we started the company three years ago, and and if you want me to dive into a little bit of history, yeah, go ahead. Um, I did quite a bit of sheep and goat hunting, and I uh, got to wear some really premium, high quality gear, and um, just saw a gap between that and what us whitetail bow hunters needed, um, the, uh, particularly the the camo pattern. I mean, I knew that we could produce the quality of the really premium stuff, the stuff that's going to keep you in the tree longer, it's going to keep you cooler in the, in, in the early season, it's going to keep you warmer in the, in the late, late bitter cold. I knew we could produce that, but I wanted to produce it where it was affordable and then really put a camouflage pattern that worked for us deer hunters that hunted in different parts of the whitetail range. And um, just a quick story, I'm sure some of y'all have heard this, but... Uh, I was literally walking through the woods about to go pull a stand in October and a great horn, two great horn owls got in a fight and one of them flew down and lit in a tree and completely vanished. And I walked towards him and he flew from that tree to another one. He threw in, flew into a pine and I mean, y'all have seen them, you know how they, how they disappear. And I said, you know, that's the best tree predator camouflage in the woods. And you know, I, I got to thinking about it, and I said, I, you know, they, they eat a lot of squirrels. I wonder about the, the eyesight of deer and about squirrels. And so I went back, got in touch with a veterinary friend and a biologist, and they did a bunch of research on it. And come to find out that squirrels and white-tailed deer have the exact same vision. They have dichromatic eyesight. And not, not to get real scientific, but they have the exact same vision. And so I said, all right, nature created that owl to hide from a squirrel's eyesight, why would I not want the same type camouflage? Because a lot of the patterns, as y'all know, they're, they're made to sell from hunter to hunter, right? It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily effective. It's not necessarily how the deer sees because they see completely different than humans. So we literally just took the camo from the great horn owl and put it on really high-end premium stuff and are selling it customer direct. So we're able to take the prices that, you know, it would be sold in like a Bass Pro Shop and cut that out of the price and sell it to people direct. And um, it, so far it's been, you know, guys have been really happy with it. And, um, you know, for all of our uh, Amish friends uh, listening on MTech, you, you have, you've made an investment for the Amish community in Busy Beaver. So talk a little yep. bit about that for everybody listening. They're actually going to be able to see some of this product and, and be able to order almost uh, through the mail, right? Yeah, we're going to have like a, a mini catalog in the, in the Busy Beaver with an order form in there. And um, the thing about Customer Direct is guys worry about how it's going to feel, fit, and, and how they like it. And we have, we offer free shipping. 
free return shipping. So if you get it and there's a size that it doesn't fit or you need to return it, 100% free. We've got a 30-day money-back guarantee no matter what. And then we have a lifetime warranty on the product. So yep. five years from now, if a zipper blows out, send it back, we'll, we'll repair it. Well, I want to – we're, we're going to put Don on the spot here a little bit. Don is wearing what, – what piece is this? This is the Sherpa jacket. Yep. And, Don, you've talked about the zippers on these. That was the first thing that Absolutely. you talked about um, – is is the zippers on these things? We've actually had problems with zippers mm-hmm. of some of our high end camo. Um, the I don't know is is there something technical that the techie guys for garments are going to see about the zipper, or is it is it just a quality Which, standard a, that the, you're putting extra money into the garment? The, there are several layers. YKK is a zipper that most people will have heard of, and that's kind of the high end uh, zipper. But but there's different levels of the YKK zippers. Okay. There's kind of an Asian or China version. There's a European and an American version. And you've got to go with the high-quality components, even though it's more expensive, um, because obviously the zipper is the most used part of the, of the garment. And so that was something that we had to nail. Well, I've always wanted to say this on camera with Don in frame, but can you stand up and turn around to the camera? No. <laughs> <laughs> In all seriousness, no, the the tails of these garments is another big thing that I like about it because you don't have to worry about the plumber butt showing in the tree stand. Um, you can look here, Steve will zoom in on the wrists of, um, of Don's here. Uh, what do you call this thing here where it cinches down tight around your wrist? Yeah, it's just like our neoprene cuff. So, and the, another reason for the, uh, for the tail is wind, right? Yeah. You don't get the wind blowing up under there you know, when you're sitting down on your stand, keep you dry. Um, and then I really the think you should stand up and turn around. Oh, I never thought I was going to be a model, but hey. Me and Steve had this planned out, by the way. Did you really? <laughs> Show everybody your butt, Don. You've never done that before. <laughs> but yeah, it's almost as long as like a, a button-up shirt hanging down in the back. And that's something I really like. You got a couple. We we got a couple pieces over here. These are these are fat boy sizes. These are all mine. But uh, um, what are you going to start out with? The, I, I want to show just a couple of the things. Um, we're not going to go through a whole lot of stuff. But this this is the ingenuity and the detail you put into this garment. Uh, that's the Sherpa pants, right? Yep, Sherpa pant, and and all of our pants are designed the same. And you know, I built these thirty five years of bow hunting of how I really wanted a pair of pants. To, to fit and work and, and what I needed. Um, because if you can't help people with what you're putting out on the market, it's not going to last very long. Yep. So, so we, we did put a lot of, lot of thought into this. The, on, the, on the thigh here, we have a flap to protect the zippers so you won't Steve's re- going to zoom in here real quick so everybody can see it. So you, so you don't rub anything on your zippers. And then when you pull it back, you've got two bellow pockets there that, that obviously they've got double zippers. But that way you can put plenty of stuff in there. Then you've got regular of the slit pockets up here. And then a unique feature is on the sides of these pants, we put these sides uh, vents. And what that does, if you open these pockets and this side pocket, you know how when you walk in in the morning, everybody gets sweaty when you have your stuff on? Well, this dumps all your heat out when you walk in. And then you can, when you get up there and you start to cool down, you zip everything down and it's going to retain all the heat in there. 
So that that was uh, something that we knew we wanted to do was be able to, because that's a problem, right? When you walk in, you've got your base layers on and you're sweating and odor, right? I mean, that's the, the three things that we're trying to always win, sight, sound, and smell. If we can beat them with those three, and that's going to help you with your odor and keeping your sweat down when you're walking in. And then we've lined these. These are like a pant that you can wear down into the 20s. We've got a Sherpa lining in here that, that really retains your heat, and then it is windproof. We've got a PU laminate in there, so wind can absolutely not get through these pants. And um, they are treated with uh, antimicrobial, all of our fabrics are, and then a DWR. So with that PU laminate and the DWR and any light rain or snow, you're going to be fine. If you get into a big-time downpour, we do have rain gear that you can wear. Um, to keep you completely dry. All right, so that's the Sherpa pants. What we got? What we got over here? This is one of my favorite pieces here, especially in Kentucky when it's a little bit still warm when we're starting bow season. Sir, Tur turkey hunter, tur turkey hunters would like this. Right yeah, a lot of guys. Right a lot of guys at Turkey Hunt use this, especially when the season first gets going. This is called our grid fleece hoodie, and it's a half zip. Again, walking in, unzip this thing, stay good and cool. Um, and then we have built-in face mask and hood um, and all of our tops, or all of our hoodies, I should say. Um, so you've always got your face mask. If you don't want to wear the hood, don't want to wear the face mask, you just kick it behind you. You don't even really know it's there. Um, tree harness slid in the back in case you want to run your harness underneath. And this is a really super quiet grid fleece. I mean, zero noise. And then we have a kangaroo pocket in the front. Um, in case you want to put anything in there, you know, you can use it as a hand warmer. So this is really a, a, a early to mid-season piece and a layering piece. Okay. All right, and then we'll, then the, uh, the for the guys that get really, really cold like me, that, um, you know, that's the first thing they ask is how warm is this stuff? Th this is our most technical garment. These are our late-season bibs. And there's a lot that went – there's nine different fabrics on this. It's the same pocket design as our pants. And then on the sides, you have full leg zips. So you, I wore these in Kansas when it was like negative 9, 20-mile-an-hour winds, and I would walk in with all my stuff underneath but have these zipped all the way down. And then when I got in the stand, you know, zip them back up and stayed warm the whole time. Um, another feature on here is something I never could figure out why guys – didn't do this before, but you know how you have the buckles on the bibs to adjust them? We put like uh, sweatbands, if you will, over the top of the buckles, so there's zero noise, and those are removable, so you can take them off if you want them off, but that way there's, there's no noise on these plastic or metal buckles. Um, let's see, what else in the bibs? You've got uh, two different hand warmers up top, hand warming pockets, and they're filled with 220 grams of Primaloft insulation in the core, and then it tapers down to the extremities to 150. So you're going to stay warm. The biggest thing I like about being able to vent everything, even, even the Sherpa pants, is for that walk-in, you don't have to put layers in your backpack necessarily. You can unvent everything and walk in less movement when we get to the stand, not having to all of a sudden try to find your, your jacket or something in your backpack and try to get dressed at the base of the tree or even up in the tree. Yep. That's that's one of my favorite things. I mean, you got anything else to say, Don? Are we going to no, make we, you model we another We used piece? them last year for, for the first season. You know, we bought our first uh, outfits because we wanted to test them before – um, we took Osseo on as a as a partner, and they performed every bit as good as the 
stuff that I paid over $1,000 for, so been really happy. I'm and much, much better zippers for one thing. That was the first thing he talked about was the zippers as yeah. soon as he got it. So, uh, but, and again, we're, we're happy you're here this week for the master class guys that are going to be able to go over here to the display with all of the different camo pieces. We just showed three of them here today. Uh, you'll be able to walk through that and have side conversations, but you're, you're here to talk about deer hunting. So, yes, sir. um, so we're going to, we're going to go ahead and start getting questions ready to come in from the audience. So whoever wants to start that out, uh, Joe, um, I know you have turkey season coming up while we're waiting for people to come up and get ready to ask questions. How many states are you turkey hunting? What's your plans for that? So, believe it or not, I don't do a lot of turkey hunting. No, we um, don't either. Yeah, I uh, I actually did go Tuesday morning. It's a tr- tradition. Uh, my best friend from when I was really little is a huge turkey hunter, and I go with him every opening day, and I don't even take a gun, but I just go with him and watch him shoot him and do some calling, and uh, I'm always scouting for deer, too, because he lets me hunt his property. So uh, Yeah, that's a good win-win. Good, yeah, good good reason to be out there. We got a really big turkey hunter here. You want to, while, while we're waiting for the first question, you want to introduce our other uh, guests that are here today? You know, Al Foster's here. Yeah, he's, he sure he's, is. He's a big turkey hunter. He's one of the few that's been turned loose on my home farm to chase him around you want to introduce all the rest of our guests we're going to have a couple more making appearance on the podcast we've, here tonight. we've got uh, jay gingrich from gingrich tree farm one of our sponsors yep uh chris yates from victory chevrolet is here we're going to hear from him he drove up two new uh 2500 he brought two new pickups with him yep one for me one for you and we're not going to get made fun of this time because yeah. we didn't get the same color you know what i'm afraid when he sees the one i'm giving him back he may drive the new one home and leave me with what i had well i i don't for those of you who follow me on social media i had a big scare when i left here uh last saturday night i should have parked at the road i was in a hurry trying to save four minutes that it probably cost me an hour and a half but i slid it off the road and into a ditch and buried a, a duramax so um, uh, Jake Hewing, if you're listening, you saved my life. I've still made it home uh, Saturday night, and we did not scratch Chris Yates' truck up five days before I turned it in. So I think he was uh, – Chris was a little puckered up when he heard that I slid it out into a ditch and buried it. Well, I think we need to take a video camera in my garage when he sees <laughs> when he's <getting> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to be hearing from them. We got our first question, so come on up. State your name and where you're from and get Don wound up. Hello. Uh, Derek Hagan from Clay City, Illinois. Um, I got a pipeline right away that runs through my property. It's probably 20, 30 yards wide. It runs pretty much north and north and south and gets a lot of shade, of course. What would you recommend to plant in? I can plant from one end of the property all the way across the entire thing. And then another thing, uh, I miss your uh, best and worst every week on your podcast. Well, <laughs> you know, there's been a, a few people say that, but I've also had a few comments. People said that uh, they're glad we took it off because they got tired of hearing me complain. <laughs> it was easy to find the worst. Some days or some weeks it was hard to find the best of the week. But uh, I, as far as planning on that right away, if it's getting mostly shade, I mean – um, I would go with a, either a fall planted blend like Harvest Salad or Deadly Dozen, or probably Clover, one of those two. Um, those fall planted blends, once the uh, leaves start falling off those trees, they, they get some filtered sunlight uh, through those trees. So that, that one of those two would, would be my choice. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, um, the best and worst, it was, um, I don't know, it was kind of fun well, to listen to your rant, but the bottom line is we don't like looking for the negative every single day just mm-hmm. to create podcast content and i know people like to listen to it but at the end of the day we 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 don't necessarily want to focus on that and try to create a segment of the podcast to complain about even though there's a lot we can complain about yeah usually it was a matter of selecting the worst of the worst because there's a handful (laughs) which one are we going to talk about this week all right well this this crowd's very bashful steve's gonna have to take out some pauses here here we got one so, what is, I'm Clint from Southern Indiana, uh, other than trail cameras, we're all here to chase giants, what is the best way to find them? Like, as far as, I've got trail camera pictures of nice deer in the summer times, about September, they peel out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, just like, what? To, how are you finding these deer, if you had to start right now, you didn't have your home property or what you know already, how are you going to find a, a, a giant and kill him this year? Well, there, there's no doubt. It's, it's all trail cameras. It's 99% trail cameras. Um, you know, you think about it, a lot of the bigger bucks I've shot, I, I did not see them, lay eyes on them until the day I shot them. But I had, there's one in particular that I'm thinking of. I watched that deer for six years through trail cameras and then the first morning I hunted him, I killed him, but it was the first time I'd ever laid eyes on him. I'd never seen him in person. Trail cameras are game changers, um, and nothing else even comes a close second. Um, so if, if I was to go out today, you know, you, you talk about that fall shift where the bucks shift from their summer range to their fall range. I, I'm blessed to live in, a, in an area where I grew up. You know, I, I've been here since I was born, essentially. So when I put trail cameras out, I'm not just putting them right here on my farm. I'm branching out two or three miles in every direction. And when these bucks, uh, they don't summer on me. They summer away from my farm in different bachelor groups. So, you know, there's a distinct bachelor group every summer to the east of me. There's another one every summer to the west of me. And then there's another one to the south of me every year. These bachelor groups are in the very same place. I hang my cameras on the very same trees every year. And then there's bucks from each of those bachelor groups. When they break up, they they go different directions. Well, some of them are coming my way. So, you know, that's how I track them down. And, you know, the buck at Trump that I shot in 17, um, he was one of those bucks that was in one of those similar bachelor groups, but he did not come to my farm. So I knew that. And there was another farm that I hunted not too far in another direction. He never went there either. And so what I did was I, I, I could scratch off the west because I knew he didn't go to the west or he'd been on my place. He, I knew he didn't go to the north or he'd have been on that other farm. So that left the south and the east. And from that point, I just branched out to the south and the east, and I got permission on as many places as I could to put cameras, and I found him. And I found him on several different properties Um kind of put the uh, the puzzle together. Now, I ended up shooting him on the original place where he would summer. Um, he had a pattern where he would not leave his summer range until there was um, crops were all harvested right there. He was like right out, out on the wide open prairie. And uh, as long as those crops remained, he remained. And then when those crops got harvested, then he went to the south and the east. So, uh, you know, my my pattern or my plan based on what I 
I witnessed from my trail cameras was that I was going to stay in his summer range until the crops were harvested, and, and that's where I ended up killing him. So trail cameras are, there, there's nothing else even close to give us the information like that for these big bucks. I think one of the other points that you're going to learn in the master class, you know, here this weekend is, you know, what he's talking about on the podcast, if you, going back to a Dr. Strickland chart, you know, everything's a bell curve with a scientist or a biologist, you know, the, the, the middle bell curve of what we know is whitetail, Don's looking to hunt that little bitty right-hand side of the bell curve of the elite world-class bucks. You know, that's where he's centered in on. But what he does a really good job in this class over the next day and a half is going to be focusing on how bucks act when they're mature. So when they get to be what he's, what he's talking about as five and a half years or older, identifying their wants, needs, desires, and finding those properties. Um, what he's talking about here on the podcast, you know, there's, there's a lot of mature bucks that, that you have on properties that you run cameras on. You're just choosing not to hunt them because they're not in the, what he's after is the elite you know, the best of the best. So I don't know, Joe, you, you hunt all over the country. Yeah. I don't know if, if, if you got other insights other than running trail cameras. I mean, you're, you're hunting places you've probably never had a trail camera on. Yeah. There, there's only three ways to find a big deer, right? There's only three ways. You get a trail camera picture of him. You see him with your own eyes or human intelligence. Somebody tells you that he's there. That's the most unreliable way. But you've got to maximize those three. Yeah. Especially if you're going out of state, you've got to find reliable folks that you can count on, um, which, is, which is difficult. But you, those are the only three ways to do it. And, you know, some, some guys don't know this, but in a lot of states, um, you're, you're allowed to shine at night where it's legal. My gosh, we'll get a million emails about Send this. all hate mail to Joe Miles. Yeah, don't do that. On Instagram. <laughs> that's a really good way to find a big deer that, that, that's nocturnal if it's legal in your area. A lot of times when, when the season comes in, you can't do it, but if it, you should check your game laws for your particular state, and if you can shine at night, man, that's a good way to locate one. Early season, obviously, bachelor groups. Um, in season, you know, I hunted a really big deer in Kansas, and it just went dead on me, and, and I took four days in Kansas, rolling hills, open prairies. I got back, you know, drove my truck way back away from the draw I was hunting where I could see just literally, you know, a mile in, in each direction. And three afternoons, I just stayed back there with my binoculars and spotting scope and looked and looked and looked and finally found where he was coming out. Um, instead of sitting in the stand the whole time and burning it up. And I absolutely was in the wrong area and had to move it. So um, I, I don't know if that helps any, but that that's trail cameras, absolutely number one, seeing them with your own eyes early season and in-season scouting. And then if you can find reliable folks to, to help you out. Yeah, because uh, when somebody says they saw a giant, does that really mean he's a giant or is it a giant to them? Most you, of the time, you live in you live in that world. Yeah, yeah. Well, most of the time, it's not a the what I would call a giant. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you always got these uh, jealous people that are going to send you on a wild goose chase. So you got to know your source, and, and you got to know if they know what a giant is. Yep. And those people are hard to find because most of them want to hunt that deer themselves. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you got Joe Johnson. That's that's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got another. Come on, we need questions here. Here we go. 
That one's off camera. This one's off. All right, I got a question for you, Don. So you talk about elite whitetails. I'm looking at two right here from this farm. Um, you also talk about uh, shooting does with twin button bucks. Mm-hmm. Does does uh, these two whitetails here have any play or impact on your management for shooting does on this farm? Why or why not? Uh, no, those they, they really don't. I, this area just does not have a substantial deer herd. And uh, up until 2011, my approach to managing this farm was for every buck I shot, I wanted to shoot two does. So if we shot four bucks, we shoot eight does. Well, then in the summer of 2012, we had a, a real bad EHD outbreak and literally wiped out at least 75% of the local deer herd. At that point, we quit shooting does. And since 2011, last year we shot several does, we've only shot two does on this farm. And that's because we're trying to build the population back up in this area. Uh, the state did absolutely nothing when that EHD outbreak hit. So, you know, I wanted to get the herd back substantial on this farm, and it's just now starting to get there. Um, the two does that we did shoot have been shot in the last two seasons, and both of those, the only reason they got shot is they had twin buck fawns with them. Um, I don't think that it played any role whatsoever in these two bucks. So, so I think I think Bronson Strickland touched on this a little bit with the buck dispersion mm-hmm. and and does. Um, Mel and Smokey, their genetics. I would I would think them being on this farm for multiple years would be in the herd here. So mm-hmm. I, I guess that was kind of my angle on does does the fact that you have two two hundred inch deer here weigh on you at all with with at least looking for does with twin button bucks. Well, it did, but uh, yeah, I think it's um, more important that I get the deer herd built back. Um, I, I can tell you that right now there is absolutely no buck on this farm that I think has the potential to even reach one eight over one eighty. There, there's one that might hit one eighty um, this year, but other than that, th- there's nothing on this farm that I believe will ever touch two hundred or even come close to it. Um, I think that uh, it was almost a perfect storm. It almost seemed like after that EHD outbreak and after we lost 75% of our deer herd, it seemed like the quality of the bucks was better. After, Even though we had fewer deer, it seemed like the quality was better. And uh, I did have a buck two seasons ago that was a two-year-old, um, had 15 points, and he was going to be a giant. Now, he, he had everything it takes to make 200 inches, but he was only two. It was going to be at least two or three more years. He got shot about a mile to the east of here um, by a neighbor during gun season. So I just – these deer are so rare, you can't plan for them and you can't manage for them. You you can manage to raise the gross score of the best buck on your farm, but to think that you can manage for 200-inch deer, I just don't think it's possible. It's not what most people think you're going to say on that, but, you know, you are running 60-some trail cameras in three states across how many counties to try to find them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, if it was as easy as managing one property, you've had this property for over 30 years managing it. If it was as easy as managing a single property to get 200-inch deer every year, it would, it would be here every year. 
or on one of the properties I managed. I, I used to think that th that was the key is how you manage your property to grow these giants. And it is to a certain degree, but when you start talking world-class bucks, I mean... Not so, age structure. we got age structure everywhere that we hunt yep. because we're, we're managing the property and not shooting three-year-olds. We have age structure everywhere. We're talking about the elite world-class. Because there's a lot of mature bucks. It doesn't matter how old they get. They're never going to top 150 inches. Yep. And that, that includes right here in the Midwest. There is a lot of bucks that lived on this farm that were mature that never got 150 inches. Yeah, some of the data that Dr. Strickland talks about in, in his portion of, of it is the key there is your 150-inch three-year-old is the one that has the chance to be elite. And usually that's the one that ends up getting shot versus yep. the three-year-old 120-inch deer. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's still a wild deer herd. You can only do so much. That's right. But so. to, to consistently kill world-class, you got to cover a lot of ground. And that's the, that's the hardest part about shooting deer like this is uh, finding them. Yeah. They're no smarter than any other mature buck, but, boy, they're so much more rare and, and harder to find. And, you know, you hit it on the head there, Terry. I cover a lot of ground. I mean, a lot of ground looking for these deer. People, I think if people realize how much time, effort, and money I spend looking for this kind of deer, um, they wouldn't even think of trying to do it. Yeah. All right. Clint, Southern Indiana again. Uh, so you say they're rare and they're hard to find. Uh, <laughs> I know you've consulted all over the place. Joe, you hunt everywhere. Terry, you're from Kentucky. What's uh, with true giants? Is there something that you see where they live that they all have in common? Giants or age structure? Uh, probably, I guess age structure probably. Well, yeah, all, all the giants uh, have age. Um, yeah. I, uh, Dr. Strickland had a slide. What did it say? All big bucks are old bucks? Yep. I think that's one of the slides in his presentation. Um, a, a lot of these giants come from properties that are near giant sanctuaries, um, large areas where no hunting's allowed. And, and what's going on in there is simply age. And a lot of bucks are, are getting to the older age classes, and that improves the odds that at least one or two of them are going to be giants. To answer your question? Yeah. Thanks. Okay. Joe, anything to add on that? Oh, I, I mean, I, again, it goes back. If you wanted to try to shoot a 170 in South Carolina, you, it, the chances of that happening are, are not. Our season comes in August 15th, rifle season. It goes all the way to January 1st. you you got to hunt a state, an area that lets the deer get old. Um, you know, a one-buck state, you know, um, one that's hard to get drawn. Why is Iowa so good? It's hard for non-residents to go there and hunt. Um, so th those are the things you gotta you gotta look at. I I don't know if this is true, Don. Um, I guess a question for you: soybean production mm -hmm. is. Somebody told me one time you could literally take a, a transparent map and put soybean production, and then where the Pope and Young record book bucks, and they are identical. Is that is that true? Yeah, I've seen that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so there's another another thing: mm -hmm. giant soybean produ producing areas. Um, but I don't know that it's necessarily about specifically soybeans, but probably the quality of the soil and the crops absolutely. that are being grown. You know, I right. don't think we give enough credit to what's in the soil coming through the plant. In is different than just the plant. Yeah, itself. I mean they. Yeah, free range deer in Texas with the right soil and, and mineral content. You know they they get 160, 170 inch wild deer down there. Yeah. So and there's no soybean there whatsoever. But right. I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
All right, so we got another question here. So I'm Marcus Wenger from Dalton, Ohio, and my question is, so you've mentioned about uh, if you see a doe coming along with two buck fawns to shoot her so that you can have the buck fawn stay in that area, hopefully, uh, rather than she ch chasing them away. Um, so I've heard the comment or people saying if you do that, um, their natural way of having the buck fawns, preventing the part of inbreeding. Now, my question is, okay, so you've have, you have a lot of experience with raising deer and so forth. What is your perspective on that? Or does, that, does my question make sense, I guess? Yeah, so, you know, if I understand your question right, um, buck fawn dispersal is Mother Nature's way of preventing inbreeding. So the research done at the University of Georgia um, by Dr. Carl Miller basically showed that uh, if a doe's alive and she's getting ready to have fawns, she will kick off the previous year's buck fawns. And in that study, on the average, they would relocate between 5 and 20 miles from where they were born. Um, that same study showed that if the, the doe was still alive um, or, or if she was killed, those numbers reversed. The buck fawns would not disperse. 90% of the time, they would stay right there where they were born. And that leads to your question, if I understand it right, they are there where they're born and where they have sisters, um, half-sisters, whatever. Um, you know, I, I think uh, in the grand scheme of things, God had it all planned out when, whenever uh, he, he created all creatures. And uh, I, I think the likelihood that th that inbreeding, if you will, is going to be so close that it's going to create genetic defects, if you will. I think in the livestock industry, there's a lot of what they call line breeding, which is essentially planned inbreeding, um, where a lot of times a male will maybe be um, bred to, you know, a, a related female. And it, it's typically not done close, like a, a buck is a lot of times not bred to his direct daughter, but one that's a little farther down the line. Um, ironically, if it works, they call it line breeding. If it don't, they call it inbreeding. So, uh, um, you know, one of the one of the interesting comments that Dr. Strickland made in this room two weekends ago was, uh, and and I'd never really thought about this um, as it related to your question, but a very high percentage of twins, um, dear twins, born the same year to the same mother, actually have a different father. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've okay. seen that research a lot. So so that's saying that two twins born at the same time had a different dad. So um, in, in that case, the likelihood of a buck fawn staying and breeding its sister that they had the same father, when you're talking about how many bucks are going around breeding doe after doe after doe, that's getting very, very small percentages. So, And how often is that going to happen? I mean, it's not like you're shooting nine does with – twin fawns i mean mm -hmm. once every three years that phenomenon might happen or mm -hmm. you know certainly not a ton i wouldn't think yeah so i mean the and it's not just it's not just in 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 whitetail when you hear these stories about a juvenile mountain lion showing up in a crazy spot that they don't have mountain lions in Nine times out of ten, that's a juvenile male. Almost always, it's a juvenile male. So he's he's been pushed off. What's the term called? Maternal aggression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the maternal aggression is that mother pushing him away, 
to go find some new home range. And, I mean, every couple of years you hear about a mountain lion showing up in some weird place. Yeah. Well, I think God had a perfect plan, and, and if that was going to be an issue, he would have made all males disperse. That's the way I look at it. So. Thanks for answering. It makes sense. Yep, you're Good welcome. Good question. All right, we got another one coming up here. We get a lot of questions about the killing the doe with the two buck falls. Oh, People are really intrigued by that. Mm-hmm. My question is, um, you've talked on your podcast and previously about um, you got close canopy for um, woods about going in and having it logged and open it up and let the new growth. Where do you uh, where do you draw the line on if you have mature oaks? You have all mature oaks and. Um, on my property, I got one section that's closed cam. It's big timber, really big timber. And um, it pr- produces, last year was some phenomenal on acorns everywhere. Mm-hmm. Where do you draw the, do you, do you have to sit back and look? What do you need? Do you need the food or do you need the bedding? Or how do you look at that? Or Well, I look at it as those oaks are a crop, just like corn's a crop. If, if you don't harvest, it's just going to rot in the field. Uh, so it needs to be harvested. And, and in terms of food, you're going to gain more tonnage of food by letting that sunlight come in and getting some browse growing than you're going to get tonnage of acorns. Uh, you're way better off to harvest that timber, get the sunlight in, let natural regeneration take place. You're going to have bedding, better bedding cover, better browse, better habitat, period. Thank you. Yep. There's a section on my home farm that you can ask Al and Joe that they turkey hunted this year going out the left-hand side. I'm looking at Al right now going out the left-hand side. I haven't stepped foot in that woods except one time in I think nine years, but in that case, the ash borer took over. And so all of my big trees died standing in the woods, but the undergrowth is just huge and that's become my sanctuary. So one of the places that Joe and Al set up the first morning was the open timber with the big oaks right next to it. So I'm basically letting that, I mean, it's, he'll show you pictures tomorrow of an of a area that he cut and just how thick and nasty it gets when we get that canopy out of there. It's, it's unbelievable what will come in just one year. Mm-hmm. Just mine happened because the ash trees died. Okay. Yep. We got someone coming, Terry. Yep. I'm James from Fredericksburg, Ohio. My question is, how do you determine how many does you have on your property and how many you need to shoot to get your ratio correct? Oh, boy. This is a good one. Mm-hmm. This is a very good well, one. Well, uh, two things. First of all, I, I, don't, uh, I don't worry on my property about shooting does because we just don't have the deer herd. Uh, second of all, if you're not in a program over a wide area, you're not going to be able to get the, the duck, buck to doe ratio in check because you could shoot. If you think you've got too many does and you shoot 20 on your farm, 30 are going to show up from the neighbors to replace them. If you've got the food and you've got the habitat that they were there to begin with, you take them away and, and there's going to be more come in from another um, area. I just, uh, unless you're talking about management over a bigger area, say a whole county or something, and everybody's on board, or most of the people are on board, you're going to really have a difficult time affecting the, the uh, buck-to-doe ratio. And this is why it's so important for states to have uh, bi- good qualified biologists on staff making the rules instead of a bunch of politicians. 
And that's what disgusts me about Illinois is because any Tom, Dick, and Harry can go to their legislator, their senator, whatever, and say, hey, you know what, I, I think we need to have an extra doe season. And that legislator, he writes a bill, let's, have, let's be shooting does in, in May, you know. And all of a sudden, we got a bill to shoot does in May. And uh, that's how the crossbow got started in Illinois, was somebody going to their legislator. They wanted to get their kids involved. Well, hey, wait till your kid's big enough to shoot a bow, then take them hunting. Now I'm going to get fired up. Um, <laughs> and that's what got the crossbow started in Illinois, because a biologist was not in charge of the deer herd. A bunch of stinking politicians were. And uh, you... So back on your topic, <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna affect the buck to doe ratio by yourself on on one property because the properties around it are just gonna um, they're gonna filter in and, and replace what you shot. So I've never done this. I'm I'm gonna return a question to someone who asked a question. Is that okay? Yes. What's your goal of shooting does on your property? What do you think the benefit of that gives you? I'm just curious because there's there's different opinions. Is it because you want to see more activity during the rut? You want to see more bucks running? Is that is that because that's one of the one of the logics that people have behind shooting does mm-hmm. and getting the numbers down? The, it gives them more action during the rut. Is that why, or is it just the reason we would shoot does would be because we also hunt some for meat? Yeah, that's about the only sure. reason that we shoot many does. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's another great reason. Uh, we've talked about that on the podcast, mm-hmm. and you strategically hunt the, those does in areas that doesn't ruin your sanctuary or your rut spots. You know, in early season or late season, pull them out away from your prime area. The problem I have with it, and I don't know, you, you can jump on a tangent on this or not, but there's so much garbage on the internet right now that says you need a one-to-one or a two-to-one buck-to-doe ratio because I want to see more bucks running in the rut. Well, doesn't logic say that unless I have 2,000 acres that he's going to run off my property where the neighbor's going to shoot every three-year-old? So, so stupid, stupid Kentucky boy logic is the more does I have, the more I want every single spike in lockdown the entire rut so he's not running off onto the neighbors where he's getting shot with a high-powered rifle in three weeks of gun season in Kentucky. That's my stupid logic. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's right or not. I agree with it 100%. I mean, if he's got plenty of does on your farm, he doesn't have to go to the neighbors. And if you decide to allow that buck to live, there's a whole lot better chance or odds of his survival um, if he's got all the does he needs on your farm and you're not going to shoot him. But if you're doing everything on your farm to take care of your deer herd, especially in late season, it doesn't no matter how many does you shoot, you're going to pull them in from everywhere else because you're the only one with food. So what's it matter? You're still going to end up with too many does on your property. Right? All right. Thank you. I think Al had a comment here too. I don't... You got to come up here so people can get this on. Uh, he's, he's, he's... Yes, he, he, Al makes a very good point. And our audience tonight is a gentleman that I respect greatly right here in the front row, Lee Mitchell. He's a biologist here in central Illinois on a public land project, but he's also a d- does work in Texas on a ranch down there. He's done work in Missouri uh, as a biologist. He's done work in uh, Georgia, and I'm probably missing a half a dozen other states. 
But this guy, and I've actually referenced Lee's, uh, some of Lee's material or his studies that he's done locally, especially in 2012, the year of the drought. Um, Lee's always made the deer or the deer hunters on this project that he manages check in their deer during firearm season. And he keeps track of the deer's, the buck's age, their weight, and their gross antler score. And it was pretty interesting um, what he found in 2012, the year of the drought, and how much it impacted the antler score and the body weight. So maybe we can get Lee to come up here and, and, and talk about that just a little bit. Guys, I'm telling you, this guy is not only a fantastic deer biologist, he's probably the best deer hunter in this room. Believe it or not, this guy has, I, if you read my book, Whitetail Icons, and I know I'm sitting next to another one right here. <laughs> Right, right here on each side of me are, are two guys that I have a ton of respect for, for their, basically their success. That They've proven it. They don't just talk about it on the internet like a lot of these clowns do. They've got the bucks on the wall to back it up. And Lee's done most of his on public ground even. So, I, I mean, you're looking at an absolute expert who's a biologist. I'm going to go on a real rant here. If this guy was in charge of the Illinois deer herd, we would be in such better shape than what we are today. And I don't blame it all on the Illinois DNR biologists. It's not all their fault. It, it's the, the politicians that kind of tie their hands and force things on them. But if I could pick somebody to, to just, if I could handpick one person to turn over the Illinois deer herd to, it would be this guy right here. I thought I was just going to come eat pizza tonight. But. <laughs> <laughs> no chance. So, uh. I'm not sure what the question was, but I'll try to answer whatever you want. If you could just uh, tell us a little bit about what you've seen during the drought of 2012 and how it affected the body weights and the antler scores. I think that's just fascinating research. So if it, maybe talk just a overview of the research, and if somebody wants to learn more about it, tell them where they can go and possibly find that if it's available. Sure. So I, I do. I manage a large public property. Um, one of our best resources around here are our deer. So... I keep close tabs on it. I sample half of the deer that are killed off the project every year. So if you get a tag, you have to bring your deer to me, be it buck or doe. Um, so I take pull teeth for ages. I send them off to the lab, get, get all the, the uh, basically all the bucks that are older than a year and a half, um, you know, true ages or at least as close as you can, um, rather than just aging them by tooth wear, which isn't very... Um, accurate in these parts. They eat a lot of soybeans. You don't see much wear, even on the older age class bucks. If I'm looking at their jaw, it looks like a two or three year old, and the ages are coming back five and six. So I just automatically pull their teeth, send them off, antler measurements, body weights, um, lactation rates on your does, etc. And I've been keeping that for since 2005, and I do it every year. And in 12, we had a 15% drop in antler score, quite a, quite a drop. I can't remember ex the exact body weight, but probably 20 pounds on the bucks. I do see some variation in um, buck weights, basically based on rut timing. So, I mean, not rut timing, but our gun season timing. So it's either, oh, depends on what time of the year it falls. It can fall a week earlier or a week later. If it falls earlier, the bucks will be heavier. 
a week later, of course, they're going to be lighter because they've been running harder. But I see, very, you know, just a few pounds, but it was quite drastic in 12, you know, 20 pounds or so, and a, and a lot in the antler. Um, spreads, mass, tine length, you name it, beam length. Saw it dropping everything. Um, one thing I have seen around here, we, he talks about the EHD that was tied in with the drought in 12. Um, lost a huge amount of our deer herd. I didn't see hardly an increase in body weight by more than a pound or two, which I, I, I expected to see it. Hey, we lost half our deer. Got a lot more resources out there now because we don't have as many miles to feed. Didn't hardly see the uptick, mm. period. Um, we're, we live in such a fertile area, it doesn't matter. We, don't, we have not reached our carry capacity at all. Talks about South Texas. I work in South Texas. I manage a 13,000-acre th ranch down there, and we do shoot does very hard. Um, we actually plan for droughts in South Texas. Mm. You have too many deer on the landscape, they'll impact the native vegetation, and it won't, it'll take it years to recover. So that's you're really, killing, really important. You're killing does for other reasons. We're there, killing does yeah. for other reasons. So That's interesting. And we are trying to keep good sex or tight mm -hmm. sex ratios. We want our rut over very fast. We want our, our fawns getting dropped at the same time. Um, we do have a lot of predators down there. Um, but we want our bucks to not be stressed for very long. So we do keep a pretty tight ratio. One and a half um, does per buck. Sometimes a little tighter than that, depending on how many does we shoot and how many bucks get taken. So we'll do a helicopter flight on that property, and then that's where we'll base our what we shoot on that property. But we are literally planning for the drought. We could carry more deer in a wet year, way more deer, but we get a drought a year. The, the damage they'll do to the habitat is... It isn't worth it. You don't. You want. I want just enough deer to keep the landowner happy. Basically, seeing deer in out of the stand. You're evaluating the carrying capacity exactly because there is a true carrying capacity in that because that habitat is so harsh. Um, Joe talked about the buck size down there. It's um, we've shot a few 200 inch bucks off this property, and it is free range, but it's huge. But the genetics are there. It's phenomenal habitat and uh, you keep the numbers low and the habitat in good shape and you get big deer so you're letting them get old too and we do um, down there they don't hit 145 at four and a half they're on the chopping block so we'll shoot about 60 deer a year off that place bucks and um, my kind of place <laughs> <laughs> so you got a bunch of rednecks in this room yes, saying sign me up yeah it's a lot of fun but um you know, we'll only shoot, this year we, sh we shot six bucks that were what I would consider trophy bucks. And that's, that's the top. I, I, I try to not shoot any more than that, period. And everything else is bucks that I, I really don't want to see on that property. So, like I said, they don't hit 145 and four and a half, they're getting shot. So... Um, and like they said, it's such a small, minuscule portion to the right of that bell curve. Um, those are the bucks that you actually want to leave. You know, we're not even targeting these bucks till they're seven and a half or older. So we'll, you'll see them. You'll kind of catch an eye on them about three and a half years old. 
and then you'll just start falling them. They're off, off limits, and uh, you just let them go. And pretty much a hunter's going to shoot them down there, a lion. We do have mountain lions on the, pro- or on the property, um, or another buck's going to kill them, and that's it. So you uh, roll the dice on them, and, and they'll get old, and some of them will really get big. So Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. You kind of got put on the spot with that. <laughs> I know, not I really did. Notice. So hopefully I didn't just ramble around. Yeah. Well, so. you'll, you'll stick around for a couple. To t- for Ed, real quick, can I ask a question? Yeah, but you got to get to where everybody can hear you. No, I, I can yell. Okay. So um, t- tapping into Bronson Strickland from two weeks ago, where he claims and, and has proof, actually, that nutrition backs up genetic potential of the deer. Are you finding the same thing in that property down there in Texas as well as up here? So like he kind of brings up the point where it's kind of like a roadmap that unlock, un- unlocks this because you hear a lot about genetics, but nutrition is plays, according to Bronson, a big part of that. Do you find that same thing as a biologist? Oh, absolutely. You got to have, um, I mean, nutrition is huge. You can have the best genetics you can imagine. And if you don't have good um, groceries, they're not going to express themselves. They just can't. So it takes a tremendous amount to put to put into antler growth. So in Texas, what are you doing for nutrition? Are you supplementing nutrition? So we do supplemental feed down there. Um, we actually use cotton seed, and it's about every half mile we've got a, a free range cotton. I mean, they can come in anytime they want. But if we get good rain down there, they won't touch it. They don't need to. The, you know, when you were talking soybeans, most of the plants down there are, are some type of legume. You know, you think, you know, it, it's putting on a bean pod. It's just not what you think of as a soybean, but it's it's still in the legume family. So tremendously nutritious. So if you've got good rainfall, that's what they're eating. They're not fooling with the cotton seed. Gets droughty, that then that's when they'll start hitting the cotton seed, because the nutrients not there. And I mean, it's there in the plant, but it's not getting unlocked by the moisture. So it's not getting drawn up out of the soil. You guys talked about the bread basket and the soil type. It's that's it's overlaid on the soil type. Not it, it just grow, happens to grow good soybeans, but that soil type is what makes the big antlers. So if that makes sense. Absolutely. So that that ranch in South. I keep talking about South Texas, but I do a lot of work down there. But. The landowner bought this ranch in 17, and it was it hadn't been managed in years. It was overrun with deer. And like I said, this was the first year we actually started shooting some big deer. Um, but we're seeing, I mean, just getting those numbers down, we're starting to see, you know, some really big deer where at first we weren't seeing four or five-year-old buck might be 115 inches. So, I mean... Like I said, I think we shot a 225 off there a couple of years ago, and you should let it. I mean, seeing some year. really, really big deer on there now, and it's it's simply because you got the numbers down and the habitat's in good shape, and we're really starting to see them come back. They were there the whole time; they just weren't expressing themselves because of the uh, 225. Joe, would you pull the trigger? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's above my pay grade, but I saw that buck while I was shooting those. So. I'm in. <laughs> Anyway. All right. Well, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming yeah. up. And Thank you, Lee. All right. Got another question here. Yep. 
I'm Greg, St. Joseph, Illinois. Don, actually, my son Brian wanted me to ask you a question. It's a little bit, guys are going to think I'm nuts for asking this, but it's an observation that we've had. I want to see if you've ever seen this before. Um, and as you know, at my place, we're, we're lucky enough on my home farm that there's about a 900-acre forest preserve. I farm on both sides of it, so it's not huntable whatsoever uh, where my home place is. But we have noticed, um, and he's noticed, um, after the bucks get seven years plus, uh, we have found um, that they seem to get a little bit more, I wouldn't say late, a little more comfortable, a little more relaxed. We've actually been able to get a chance to, see, to, to hunt them. Up until then, a lot of times there's just, we know they're there. Uh, we've got them on camera. We just, I mean, they're almost unhuntable. Uh, when they get super old, they've given us a chance. You know, have you ever seen that type of pattern? Because we've, it's not just been one deer, it's been multiple bucks. Yeah, I have. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's lower testosterone levels as they age or what, what the uh, reasoning behind it is, but I, I've seen more than one mature buck. Actually, Terry shot a nine, and it was, no, he was 10, ten. And, ten and a half years old buck uh, that, you know, what time? It was the middle of the morning. It wasn't. And that deer was one that I wanted to get out of the herd for a number of years, and he lived till ten and a half years old because he just didn't come by for somebody to shoot him. And then, tear. but but yeah, I've seen multiple examples of bucks that as they aged, uh, they got hard or easier to kill. I think the hardest range is from about five and a half to say seven and a half. That that's the toughest age classes to kill a buck. Before that, they're easier. After that, they're easier. But right there between five and a half and seven and a half is when they're at their toughest. I'd say you're doing something right by keeping intrusion down if you're even having a chance at those bucks. I say, I think well, that he's got he's, a 900 acre sanctuary. Exactly. He's, he's keeping the neighbors from sitting on the property line, too. So that that's helping a lot. Most most people don't have that. Yep. Well, I want to I want to put somebody on the spot real quick, if that's all right. We're. We got a couple people we need to put we on need, the spot. We need Chris Yates to come up here for just a quick mm -hmm. second and trade headsets with Joe Miles, and then Joe Miles is going to ask Chris Yates a couple questions. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's my plan. <laughs> we talk about Chris Yates all the time on this podcast, and he's finally here for an episode on camera. Good luck, Chris. <laughs> Let's put we him would, on the spot and see if he'll take my truck, no matter what it looks yeah. like. We want to know why you voted for Obama, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> he just said something to me. I'm glad it's not on uh, on 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 recording here. <laughs> How you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Put that microphone down by your. There we go. That better. That's better. We finally got you on the podcast. Finally. So you drove up from Kansas City area today with two new Chevy trucks for Don and I to swap out. Two brand new Chevy trucks. Uh, Total different color than last year, but yep. uh, yeah, one white, one black. Yep. Don's got yep. a surprise for you in the garage when you have to look at his. <laughs> I kind of figured that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as bad as you think. I understand. So, um, real quick, we we try to explain this deal. Um, you know, you're you move a lot of trucks all over the country out of Kansas City, but the kind of the niche deal that you have that we talk about is. Do we technically call it a buyback or a trade-in? I don't know how you really classify it, um, but talk just a little bit about it and what trucks qualify for this thing. So it started back kind of in 2012 where we started a lot of the farmers where I live wanted to trade trucks every year, and they wanted to 
they said after a couple of five years, they wanted to make sure that they had a truck that was paid for instead of, you know, every year, every year. So I said, here's what we'll do. We'll trade every year. I'll trade with you for five grand. And after four or five years, you'll have a paid off Duramax diesel pickup. So that's how it all kind of got started back in probably 2012. So I've been doing it since then, but the word just kind of got more and more. We kind of blew it up for you a little bit, though, didn't we? <laughs> that's an understatement. Yeah. So you uh, even in even in a year where there was a shortage of trucks, you know, we 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 started kicking this thing off when there was a shortage of chips, and then COVID had some of the plants shut down. You've still been able to accommodate a lot of people's needs, but. Um, now the deliveries are getting a little bit shorter for ordered trucks and, and you can get some stuff in um, with a little bit of notice. Yeah, uh, we went to a meeting in uh, with Chevrolet and they are the chip shortage has getting better. Yeah. Uh, some of the things you still cannot get on one. I mean, they, the, the way they keep the trucks rolling now is they'll build them, but some of the things that you used to could get on them it, that uses a chip, they keep that off of there and you can put it on like upfitted at a later date. Yeah, uh, heads up display, rear heated seats in a Duramax. So yeah, but there it's getting better. I mean, we got three loads in. Y'all's trucks was on there. Jay's was on there. So we we getting them in a uh, lot quicker. So what trucks actually qualify on this deal, Chris? Can can somebody get a dually ton truck, yep. or as long as yep. it's a diesel, that's what that's what it has to be. Twenty five hundred to thirty five hundred, as long as it's okay. Duramax. All right. Yep. So. Um, you know, um, there's really not a real estate boundary. You've you've sold these things in Georgia and Georgia. I think Massachusetts. You you yep. sent one up there, uh, Idaho, uh, Texas. I mean, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan. I've been been kind of everywhere. Well, the one thing that all of my buddies who've who've purchased one from you, they were worried about going into this is that the price of the initial truck that you bought had a subsidy where you've padded on extra in order to do it. You've beat everybody's price yep. of the first truck, um, so it's not like you're paying extra to get into this program. No, uh, a lot of people since COVID started and the supply got shortage, uh, got worse and worse and worse, they started selling for over MSRP, but I just... We just don't do that. I can't do that. I want to keep it just like it is. Because after all, the COVID's over, the shortage is over, people remember to come back to you, you know, if you take care of them now. So that's yeah. that's, that's our motto at all my dealerships. Yeah. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Chris Yates, the person, mm -hmm. not Chris Yates, the car dealer. I met Chris a couple winters ago, um, did a consulting visit on yep. your property in northwest Missouri. And the more I got to know him, he, he is – he is exactly the kind of person that we want to deal with. And I'm not going to embarrass him by saying some of the things that I know he's done, some of the great things. We've talked about some of that on the Lester's feet, how he's helped, uh, you know, some of these families with sick kids. But the list of things that this man has done um, for others, people he doesn't even know, it is long. And this is it, – it's the same with all of our, our sponsors, really. we got Jay Gingrich back here. Um, I, I see him every week at church, and I know some of the great things he's done in his community. Um, Joe Miles, fantastic person. And I, I just, uh, I'm almost speechless at, at the quality of the people that have, you know, come to be sponsors of Chasing Giants. And it's almost like God put these people in our path, good people, and then they had these businesses to go along with it. So it started with a, a friendship. That became a business relationship. Well, I think that there's a bigger picture here. You, the, all of the people that you mentioned, 
are really good human beings that do the right thing Absolutely. for others. Yep. And I think God honors that. And that's why you see these people like Chris, like, like Joe, like Jay, that their businesses are thriving. And I think God honors that when we try to do things the right way. I, I have no doubt about it. You I might have, have short-term it. success taking a shortcut, but it's going to come back and bite you. Uh, that's absolutely. Right. Yep, that's right. So um, we got a raffle open for, for Lester's Feet right now. The, the website is open. We've been selling tickets. I haven't even told you this. We've sold, I think, almost in, in like three days, we've sold almost seven or $8,000 for the tickets. Wow. And it just That's opened nice. this week. So this thing's going to be huge. Uh, our friend Brian Kraft yep. uh, partnered with you, and you guys donated a brand-new 2022. 22. 22. Yep. Silverado. Is it called a Silverado anymore? It is a Silverado. A Silverado Trail Boss. That That's is correct. The, it comes with like a three-inch lift on it. It's a the best-selling truck that, that Chevrolet has right now as far as a half-ton goes. Well, that truck pulled me out of a ditch <laughs> that I buried. So that little half-ton truck and those tires, it, it got me out of a ditch. But um, it's an honor to have you up here this week for the master class and um, more of an honor to call you a friend and a partner for uh, um, spreading the word of Jesus and helping all these families here. So Jay's going to come up here. We're going to get him on too. I would like to say Jay has been to my farm and he does absolute great work. Yeah, we Very talk we talk about hard working fellers. You're you're one of those. You won't mind. He can stand right here beside me if that's all right. I think Steve can get you in frame. I'll do that. Jay with Gingrich Tree Farm. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, you uh you, you have a long history friendship with Don. You all go to the same church. We do. Uh yeah. I believe it's, you're all on the same security team. Yeah, so if you're one of them roughnecks that shows up trying to cause trouble at 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 Solid Rock Chapel, you're going to have to face Jay. Hold on, (laughs) (laughs) if a bad guy shows up, there's going to be more good guns pop out than bad guns. I promise you. (laughs) I would say so. Yep. Well, tell us just a little bit about your business. You're a sponsor on the podcast, obviously, but uh, you you provide a lot of products for uh, for land managers who are wanting to. Uh, diversify their properties we do we grow bald and burlap trees but we do a lot more uh habitat work these days potted trees miscanthus we try to just stick with real world products have good success with them so don been good partner with us on that and uh enjoyed partnering up with you guys on the podcast you've been as far southwest as past kansas city and as far east as northern ohio i believe haven't you yeah we do we do travel quite a bit uh Put some miles on the truck. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll say that Jay's done work for a lot of my clients, and uh, I've yet to hear a complaint. Yep. And I'm sure if there was a complaint, I would have heard about it. So um, Jay and his wife have become good friends of Robin and I, and uh, you know we're just proud to have him as a sponsor. So you're all located in Arthur, Illinois, right? Yeah, we're located about 30 minutes from here, but we do travel quite a ways around, so... We're pretty booked up for spring, but, you know, if you have any small projects we can still help you out with, why well, give us a shout, and yep. uh, we'll see what we can do. So let Donner, I know um, we'll get you in touch with both Chris and Jay, and uh, we have uh, ways to put you in touch with both of you if you're interested in getting in some trees or a Duramax. How about trees in the back of a Duramax? That, that would be good. the That would be the best-case scenario. <laughs> happens so, every day. <laughs> happens every day. There we go. All right. Well, we got time for maybe one more question. Do we have anybody else that wants to close out this episode? Come on. Don't be stingy or shy. Here we go. We got one more coming up. 
It's got to put Chris Yates on the spot about something. So hopefully, <laughs> Chris Yates, what you know about scrapes? I don't know much about them. <laughs> <laughs> no. There's one down the side of Don's turn. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you know in the morning when I look at his truck. <laughs> it'll buff out. That's yeah. what. That's what. That's what Chris knows. Is it'll buff out? We hope. Yep. Let's hope. <laughs> no, I was just curious. Uh, what do you what do you look at as far as scrapes? I know you uh, use rope scrapes for kind of an inventory. Uh, say pre rut during the rut. What do what do you learn from those? What do you what kind of information do you gather? Well, I, I don't hunt over scrapes per se. Uh, the rope scrape is more of a inventory tool. Um, primarily, the only way I use a scrape is with a camera over it to inventory bucks on the property. If you've got a rope scrape on a property and it's in a good location you will get basically every buck on that property on your on one camera um, of course that depends on the size of the property but if you're talking a couple hundred acres or less one rope scrape is going to get you a picture of every buck i guess i've heard that uh you know like a like a buck will run like a, say a three-day circle and he'll check that scrape mm -hmm. is there any kind of truth to that or that's uh internet fairy tales and the internet's right. full of okay <laughs> Yeah, no, th those bucks don't have a watch or, or, or a clock, you know. And the other thing is every <laughs> buck is different. Yeah, every yeah. mature buck has a different personality. So, you know, what? You, sure, there may be one buck that does that, but uh, I, I'd say it'd be pretty rare to, to find two. Gotcha. Might have one that gets him fired up, Terry. Go ahead. So... <laughs> He was saying that you're really close right now. I got a feeling. I just, <laughs> I, I got a feeling he's close. Uh, you say the best way to find deer, find people you can trust. So like Joe, he turns you on to the Joey Buck, right? Right. All right. That's all I needed. Thanks. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> was you paid to ask that or what? He just gave his business card to Joe, and, and uh, Joe's now got a new best friend. I'm betting you. I'm betting you get a Christmas card this year, Joe. You're everybody's new best friend. Aren't you glad you're not on social media? <laughs> I, I think Joe, I got something green in my pocket that might might trump that. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I have trucks. Green. I hey. have trucks if you need a truck. <laughs> This this could turn into a business opportunity right now there, Joe. We, we have a uh, – do you need an agent? I, I do pretty good at that kind of stuff for people. Loyalty and friendship. That just That's who you are, though. It's hard to find people like that in your life, isn't it? I've got a few of them, and – some of them are right here in this this room. So, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna close this podcast out with a quick story, um, if that's all right with you. Do I you don't mind? know what the story is, so I don't know if it's all right. <laughs> no, it's 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 a good one. Um, okay. It goes back a little bit about to to doing the right thing and having the right people in your life. We were at uh, in Arthur last Friday, and uh, eating eating at the buffet at Yoder's, and it was crazy busy. And so for those of you who don't know this, um, Amish restaurant has buffet. You get up there and go through. And uh, this little old lady probably didn't stand four foot nine. 
the line was clear into the other room and she's walking with her cane to go to the back of the line and I said no ma'am you're right here and I was getting ready to get my plate and she said no no and I said nope I want you to go and uh, so we were still waiting for the line to get through so I help her with her plate and get her back what I didn't know is that this little old lady when we struck up a conversation is actually the owner of one of the largest agriculture companies in the country and through that conversation I didn't know it at the time she asked me what Lester's feet was on my shirt and I told her and she said oh okay well it wasn't too much longer another lady came over and said um miss I'm not going to mention her name but miss so-and-so wants to have a conversation with you can we have your phone number so it goes back to everything that we do and you surround yourself with people like Joe Johnson or Chris Yates or Joe Miles and if you live your life to try to serve others, God's going to continue to open doors for them. And it might not be the door you think it's going to be. It might not be a 225-inch buck in South Texas that now you got 35 new friends that want to hunt South Texas for management bucks. But I think it's just a testament that if we live our life serving others, there's always going to be opportunities for, for good things to happen to us. And something as simple as me letting a little elderly lady with a cane in front of me so she didn't have to wait in line is probably going to end up connecting three or four very large companies to help families with sick kids through wow. Lester's feet. So just God working in so many different ways, even if it's me waiting one more patient person to get my fried chicken at Yoder's. If you want to be blessed, be a blessing. All right, I can't think of a better way to end it. Thanks for you tuning in. We'll see you Friday night for part two. Osseo Gear introduces a premium line of bow hunting gear that is unmatched, pairing nature's finest camouflage with the best technological innovations. Osseo Gear brings whitetail bow hunters the gear they need to be the best at their craft. The unique camouflage mimics the intricate feather pattern of North America's greatest predatorial creatures. Designed for invisibility, built for comfort, and engineered for function. Visit osseogear.com. That's A-S-I-O-Gear.com to start shopping. Osseo Gear, prepare to be invisible. If you listen to many of our podcasts, you know that minimizing human intrusion is the key to our success. Don Higgins and I have been utilizing the Quiet Cat Bike for many years now. As shed season is here, turkey season is not far away. There's no better choice to navigate around your property than a Quiet Cat Bike. Go visit Quiet Cat and use the word Higgins to get a free trailer with any Quiet Cat electric bike purchase. Well, welcome everyone to Chasing Giants Part 2 of Episode 110 brought to you by Osseo Gear. Don, this is in front of our last Masterclass live audience. It is, and I think we got a bunch of rowdies in front of us tonight. Yeah, you got a couple chuckles when you walked in the door and asked how many Democrats are in the room tonight. <laughs> Nobody left. Nobody, nobody was willing nobody's to admit, gonna admit it. <laughs> so uh, we, we recorded uh, part of a podcast Thursday night and then with this group tonight, so we don't have a whole lot here in the opener. We want to get straight to questions. <laughs> Um, but I want to talk a little bit about our activities today. We, um, we took delivery of our two new uh, Victory Chevrolet 2500 HDs today. We did. And did a lot of filming with that. Got some pretty cool footage with Steve Shields with the drone and him riding in the back of a truck hanging over the fender. Mm -hmm. It was quite interesting and cold. 
Um, it always seems cold whenever we're trying to do stuff like that. It was a lot colder for him than it was for us in the cab. Yeah, I was sitting on a heated seat truck all day. <laughs> but uh, And then you went, you guys went and uh, did some other recording for some future projects we got coming out that we're going to keep a little hush-hush right now. But um, a lot of big things coming soon with a lot of content that you and Steve Shields have really been working hard on that's going to produce a lot of video for uh, for people out there. Um I went to Arthur today up to Kitchen Seed and Real World Offices and put the truck to a test. I think there's about 15,000 pounds on the back of a truck that I hauled back in the first maiden voyage of the new truck. So, Mm -hmm. busy day for us today, but we're focused now on this class and um, the podcast tonight and then our sixth master class of the year. Yep, that's tomorrow. That'll be the last one. Um, We had 124 students from 24 different states this year. It's it's just amazing the support and um, you know the the common theme that we get from people that visit this master class is you know no one is expecting when they come in here to be able to recreate your home farm mm-hmm. but it's being able to apply everything that we talk about on this podcast that you give in presentations and create a visual that says, oh, this makes sense now. Right. Because when you're when you actually put the animations and the video up on the screen and then we walk to those exact spots to show where these bucks are doing what they do when they're five and a half years or older, it starts clicking. So then people can take tidbits back to their home properties on it. Yeah, there, there's been a lot of consulting clients come to the class and the thing that they all say is that once they see it here, the the plan all clicks. It all makes, it makes sense, sense after then. that. Yep. Yeah, so uh, I know it's hard on this podcast. We keep talking about intrusion and playing the wind, um, but the other the other common theme is, wow, this is really simple if mm-hmm. when you really break it down. Well, one of my first slides is KISS, K-I-S-S, keep it simple, stupid. Yep. And I, I preach that from the, the very beginning of the class, and I tell them if they don't take anything else home from the class, make sure they take that home. Yeah, with the flood of whiteboards on social media and everybody being an expert of overcomplicating different ideas to sell something, they just need to break it down and and really understand that a mature buck is just going to be different, and you have to adapt to that. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out on the Internet. In fact, I think there's more bad information than good information, so... We just try to break through that and simplify it where a lot of guys try to complicate it. Yeah. Um, we had even Joe Miles, our primary sponsor from Osseo Gear here this week. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's hunted all over the world, but specifically for bi- um, whitetails from Mexico to Canada. And even he came out of it saying that seeing it in person just ties everything together. So yep. uh, next year we're going to continue with the master classes, and we already have a list of people waiting to get in on that. So we'll be announcing dates a little bit later in the year specifically, and then we can open that back up. So uh, you do have a guest over on your right-hand side again today. Yeah, this is Walker, my grandson. Yep, and he's he's uh, gave me the dirty look, and I have the mute button on because he doesn't <laughs> want to talk. But uh, he's listening to us and sitting here smiling. But uh, you got some pretty new good news today as a grandpa that kind of made you pretty proud. I um, did, yeah. I told uh, your son-in-law, Corey, and your daughter, uh, Andrea, that they're doing it right, raising these kids. But uh, I think that story's worth sharing. It'll embarrass him. But Yeah, where's he at? Where's Wyatt? There he is. Hey, I, I, want you, I want you to come up here real quick. Nah, come on. <laughs> you don't have to talk. Just come up here. This is my oldest grandson, Wyatt. Come over this here. Will be Walker's older brother. Stand right here beside your grandpa for a second. You don't have to talk. 
he uh, sent me a text earlier today, and he said that uh, he was donating $214 to Lester's feet. That was all he had. So, uh, you know, there's a parable in the Bible about somebody somebody giving that it was all they had, and it wasn't very much, but it was the sacrifice that went into it. And for a young man to save up his Christmas money and his chore money and everything else to say, I'm going to help a family, um, I think that made your mom tear up a little bit earlier today. She's probably got a little tearing up right now just thinking about it. But, hey, I want, I want to tell you something. We're all proud of you. I'm not even kin to you, but I'm proud of you. All right? <laughs> Thank you, Wyatt. <laughs> See, I told you I wouldn't make you talk. <laughs> good, good boys. Yeah, well, good parents raise good kids. Yeah, I agree. Your parents are here again tonight. They are. Uh, I'm blessed to still have my parents, and uh, they're a big reason why I'm up here. They They've, said they only came to see me, though. That's probably true. <laughs> nah. Nah, that they've supported me from you know the time the day I was born, and um, they've allowed me to chase my dreams and and achieve them. So. I I still say, um, you know, you you've had the privilege of documenting um, two world class two hundred inch deer. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, you know, two videos out right now of two of these bucks that are above us right now, you know, Smokey and Mel. And both of them were produced and out there for everybody to see the story. Multiple year histories with them. And Mel's just an unbelievable story who passes a 216 deer and lets it come back. But the story of you with your dad is probably still my favorite story. Of, mm-hmm. And it was, it was special that you didn't go get Mel without your grandsons. That, I'm not taking away that. But just the fact that you wanted your dad there, um, probably my all-time favorite hunting yeah. or outdoor story out there. Well, he was there when I shot my first deer and uh, was there to help drag that one out. And he hadn't been with me to drag a deer out in 38 years. And uh, I, I knew I was going to shoot that deer that fall. I just had, him, <laughs> I had that deer pinned like I have no other big deer. And I just made up my mind that summer that he was going to help me drag that one out. Yep. So, um, pretty cool story. If, if you don't know what we're talking about, just just uh, search on YouTube, Don Higgins and uh, the Smokey video. But pretty special moment for the Higgins family uh, with Don's dad going and helping recover that deer. Um, we're going to start getting uh, the audience ready for questions. If you guys will start staging up for that, I want to, while we're waiting on there, I want to break away to our segment brought to us by Matthews Archery uh, with a Lester's Feet update. We've now had the auction or the raffle open for, I believe, five days, maybe four. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a notification today that we've already sold over $13,000 of tickets online, and we really haven't promoted anything yet. Um, I've been waiting for the website to crash or something like that, but hopefully we're okay on that. Um, we'll put the link in the description and uh, put some uh, text on th- on the U- on the video feed right now. But um, we're on our way to having this could be the largest fundraising event that's ever happened in the hunting industry. Well, I hope so. It should be. I mean, the winner is going to get a, a new Chevy truck. Uh, there's also a new John Deere tractor, and there's a pole building package. 
and what, 75 other prizes? 75. I think there's 78 total that total up over $150,000. There's mm-hmm. a quiet cat bike. I mean, if I start listing all of them, I'm going to miss them. But, guys, there's something for everybody in this, not just the hunter. Right. You know, there's a new 360 blind, a new bow, all that kind of stuff for hunters. Um, but there's also other stuff that doesn't have anything to do with hunting that I think people are going to get excited about. And the best thing we can do um, from everybody listening to the podcast now is start sharing this. Right. Um, we, we actually uh, got uh, a phone call Wednesday from a very, I can't talk about it just yet, but from a very, very big YouTube channel um, that's very popular that they're going to be sharing the information about it. So if people really want to do something to benefit these families with sick kids, share the link on this and tell your friends about this raffle. Um, 100% of the proceeds from this raffle goes to families, 100% volunteer organization, um, if you buy a ticket online, the, the website charges a small processing fee for credit cards. But um, every dollar that we get uh, beyond that is going straight to families with sick children. So that's really special. We have, um, I believe we've helped over 60 families so far since July. So just amazing. And we do have one other person in the audience today. And this is a lady that I met in Shipshawana, and she's going to give me a dirty look right now. Are, are you okay coming up here and telling, talking to me for a minute? Okay. So this lady, um, her husband's here for a master class, and I actually met Miss Donna at Shipshawana. And they were, came up to the booth, and they said, can we talk to you for a second? So we, we actually left the booth. We had a ton of people there. And she came up to me with this idea of something she'd been working on. And do you mind just talking about it just for a second? Sure. This is Miss Donna, everybody. I read a book called The Lighthouse Effect, and it just kind of moved me. And it talks about how people in everyday occurrences can just do the smallest thing to brighten the life of someone else. So I bought all these lighthouse charms, and I made them into earrings, and I wrote a little saying on the back, and so when everyone, when anyone's in need, or it seems like they're having a bad day, I always have my earrings, and I bring them out, and it just, you know, it just continues to flood and and touch people's lives. So so. just a small little token piece of jewelry about being a light to somebody else, you know, servant leadership, And this lady came to us at Shipshawana and said, I would like to give you some of these to give to the mothers of some of these families. So we've already distributed some of these too. So when we go in and we put a package together for Mm -hmm. a family that, you know, their kids got cancer or whatever, uh, you know, a lot of our, our family and friends have been making cards that we can send to these families. We're throwing in a, 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 a little lighthouse either. You brought some necklaces this time and some earrings for the mom to say, hey, somebody else is thinking about you. So I know I put you on the spot. You're here for tonight. Your husband's at the master class, and I found out they were coming. But just a cool yeah. story about doesn't have anything to do with hunting, and uh, God's just opened up these doors. So thank you for what you do. It does mean a lot even beyond us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I had no idea until just now you didn't share that with me. Sorry. <laughs> probably, probably a lot of things you don't share with me. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get our first question coming up here, um, and, and we'll get rolling. Don't, don't make this be a quiet crowd again. 
Carl, the mailman, you're up first. Let's go. I know you got, you ask us like 30 questions a week. So surely you can save one for us. Then. Don, uh, Don calls his mailman, Steve, Carl, Carl. Yeah. yeah. Carl, the mailman. Carl the Malone. Old, Carl the Malone, old the basketball player. Oh yeah. The mailman. I remember him. Yeah. He always played against Jordan in the playoffs and lost. So yeah, he did. It was I was okay with but that. But he always delivered. That's yeah, why he they called him the mailman. He did. He always delivered. Yeah. So we we actually passed him on his mail route today we while did. we were uh, well, trying to film footage with he's drones. Making a, he's making a victory. <laughs> he's Chevrolet like, what commercial. in the world are you all doing driving up and down the road thirty times? I was really disappointed you didn't ask me to have my beat up mail van in there <laughs> in that commercial. Well, it might be in there. I could be. Yeah. You should have drove it into a ditch like I did my truck no, last no. week, and we could have pulled no, you out. No, then, then it's a whole bunch of paperwork, and they get mad at you at the post office. Don't drive in the ditches or mailboxes. People get mad about that too. But. So you got a good question for us tonight? No, but no? you put me on the spot, so now yeah, I'm okay. up here, and I'm going to come up with something. All right, let's see what uh, you got. Your impromptu question of the day. My my biggest question, probably for Don, is how big this has gotten for you guys. <laughs> And how you keep yourself grounded with having your family here and your parents here. How hard is that for you to do? Is it, it would be real easy for a guy to make himself bigger and bigger headed because of it. How do you keep yourself grounded? Uh, I, I just never seen myself as anything special. I just think I'm a simple country boy and the, the whole attention I get just... <laughs> I it's, just don't see it. But, but it is something special. You are something special that all the people that help and raise money for the sick kids, mm-hmm. you're special to your grandsons and your, and your daughters. You're special to the guys sitting in the crowd, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've given a lot of knowledge and a lot of things away in your life. It's, that's got to mean something more. There's, how, do you, mm-hmm. how do you keep that in control? How do you... And being as busy as you are, maybe that's what keeps you from from real. Not, I don't know if you no. realize how many people you touch over throughout the years. Wow, I, I'm I'm not even sure how to respond to that, but uh, <laughs> um, I'll give you, you twenty know, bucks just, later for embarrassing him. <laughs> I, I just see myself as a simple country boy that's been richly blessed, and I, I've come to realize that the, the most important thing in the, in life is people. Um, family, friends, uh, people that su- uh, support me. You know, I, I would have never got where I am today if it wasn't for uh, people support me along the way, even just as simple as reading my magazine articles and attending the seminars that I do and whatever. So uh, I, I don't know. It's <laughs> Yeah, I think I do pretty good handling the positive stuff that comes my way. It's just <laughs> once in a while when the negative stuff comes my way, I want to throw mud right back. And uh, that's been the difficult part for me is is handling the negative we've people. Got, we've gotten better at that over the last couple yeah, of years. Yeah, but I still got a ways to go. And <laughs> I, I don't know. It's you know the funny thing. The funny thing about it is there's there's a lot of people that get to meet Don and see Don. There's very few of us. Al Foster, Joe, um, Steve, and myself get to spend extended periods of time. The funny thing about it is he and I could end up in a truck, say driving to wherever. We could go three hours and not talk to each other. <laughs> I mean, he's really that quiet. And uh, I can assure you from my standpoint, if it got to be where he would get out of this before it got to that point that he caved to that kind of pressure. He he wouldn't – I mean, Al's looking at me right now. Don't you agree? He, 
he wouldn't he wouldn't even be doing what he's doing if it got to be and it's still kind of awkward i mean when people come up and recognize you at weird places and Mm -hmm. I was actually in a business meeting not too long ago with the president of my company and shaking their executives' hands going down the line, and some guy goes, oh, congratulations on episode 100. And I'm like, no, not, not here. I mean, that, that stuff's really embarrassing if it's anything, but this, this guy, um, he wouldn't be doing it if it had all that other stuff in it. Mm -hmm. So, Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate it. We need another question here. I'm going to have to put somebody on the spot. You guys are too quiet. You're going to make Steve do a lot of post-production editing with this. Uh-oh. This gentleman has already warned me that he's got a special question for me. So, uh. Uh, Doug Gray from Wisconsin. Uh, Don, I learned something just yesterday that I thought would be great for you. Oh. Um, our Wisconsin DNR has a lot of concern going on about the levels of CWD that they've been testing. So they have a new, I guess, offering to the landowners to surveil deer for COVID. And in looking into this a little further, their idea for surveilling deer for COVID means come onto your land with permission and shoot a bunch of deer in April to test them and see how far the COVID is spreading. Mm -hmm. My question to you would be, what do you think of that idea? Well, I, I think that's just typical of the government. It's a government at its finest. You know, we... So, wait we, a we second. Need, they're, coming, they're coming to your property, killing deer to test them for COVID and not CWD? Oh, sorry, CWD. oh okay. I was going to ask if they were going to wear a mask while they're hunting. <laughs> Both well, are a political disease, right? They, they absolutely are. And, you know, with COVID and CWD... If the government didn't tell us it was out there, would we even know? Would we even know? We wouldn't even know. It, it's just a bunch of democratic BS so they can tax <laughs> us more and take more of our money and give it to other Democrats. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I can assure you one thing. If I'm ever suspicious of anything with CWD, the last person I'm calling is the DNR. Absolutely. There is no way I'm reporting yeah. anything if I'm suspicious nope. of it. So, all right. Tracy was getting her to come up here. Let's have one here. Tracy's been a big supporter of Lester's Feet also. He's from the Huntington, West Virginia area. And uh, for those of you who saw a YouTube video of me speaking at an event, Tracy was the one that put that together. Oh, awesome. Yep. Uh, my question is on the buck, you know, the, I mean, the doe fawn dispersal that happens. You'd mentioned previously that, you know, if you catch a, a doe with two fawns, you're shooting that doe in hopes of keeping, you know, the bucks on your farm. So my question is, is if, you know, that's Mother Nature's way of keeping incest from happening, what happens when and if incest does happen? Is there informities on those fawns that be born, or do they still have a chance to, you know, grow into something like this? The deer will identify themselves as a female swimmer. <laughs> We're not editing that out. I don't care. Let it roll. <laughs> Send all your hate mail. It's fun. I think that's how you end up with Democrats, isn't it? That's probably it. <laughs> um, 
we, we just talked about this in the class on Thursday. We didn't, yeah. You know, in the, the livestock industry and probably in, you know, breeding dogs and just about anything else, they, they do what they call line breeding, where, where they breed related, you know, a, a male and a female that are related. Usually it's not real closely related. Um, uh, when it works really well, and uh, they, they call it line breeding, when they don't, they call it inbred. So. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm just guessing with deer, it, it probably does happen once in a while. I mean, with millions of deer running around, but and I'm sure it can lead to deformities, but I, I would guess most of the time it probably doesn't. Dr. Strickland was here the opening week, um, and that exact question was asked to him. And what, I'd never thought of this. You You have talked about it before, but tying it all together, he actually talked about when a doe has twins a very high percentage of the time those two twins have different fathers. So that's how much breeding is going on. So the way he explained it is, um, you know, the likelihood of that one of those buck fawns breeding a sister that also had the same father, I mean, that's really that's really the next connection you would be because, you know, the mother's dead, so you wouldn't have a buck fawn breeding its mother. You would have it possibly breeding a sister. The fact, the the chances that that buck fawn would have the same mother and father as that other, next to nothing, so far down removed. And it's not going to happen so much that you're going to see any trend or analysis out of it. I mean, you're talking maybe once in a million type thing. I think you got a better chance at winning a new truck at the Luster's Feet Raffle than something mm-hmm. like that happening. But yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting that, that out of all of the conversation points, we get asked that. We probably, get asked that a lot. Probably one of the most uh, most uh, times of anything. Mm-hmm. Carl's back. Yeah, I realized I was standing on the tape that was YouTube, and I didn't want to. Uh, <laughs> but he's moving the camera. Anyway. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, my next question would be: You gave me a stack of magazines because I've been asking for articles and things that you had written or. Previously, other people have written. How are I had asked you some questions about some articles that I read, and you said that some outdoor writers should not be outdoor writers. <laughs> Explain that and how they became outdoor writers. Oh, this one's going to go good. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. You know, I've been writing since, uh, well, for 26 years now, and it wasn't here a while back. I, I grabbed one of my first magazine articles and read it, and I kind of cringed at what I said way back in, in the day. I've learned so much since then. It, you know, I've at one time I wanted to be a magazine editor for a deer hunting magazine, and uh, that was kind of a dream, but, uh, you know, it went by the wayside. And I always thought that if I was a magazine editor, there is no way that I would publish an article if the author was under 40 years old. And as I look back on my life, you know, when I was 30, I knew a whole lot more than I did when I was 20. When I was 40, I knew a whole lot more than I did when I was 30. When I was 50, I knew a whole lot more than I did when I was 40. And uh, I see it all the time in the outdoor industry. These guys are in their 20s and 30s, think they've got it all figured out. Those guys don't even know what it's like to hunt without trail cameras, um, without elevated blinds. Um, without a lot of the gadgetry we've got today, expandable broadheads, uh, another one, crossbows. 
And um, I, I just feel I'm blessed that I grew up at a time before all those things came along. Now, I, I use some of them today. I use trail cameras probably as much as anyone. But I learned to be a deer hunter before those things came along. And uh, the biggest thing I see, and if I was an editor, there would not be one author that was under 40 years old writing articles for me. I, I and I guarantee you, I just stepped on some toes and somebody's going to fire right. off. But they don't need to write articles. They have selfies on Instagram that they put all their <laughs> gibberish out on these days. They don't need to be, um, you know. I want to. I want to go back. We've been asked been asked a, a gazillion times about when the great debate with Tony Lapratt was going to be released. And for the record, that's going to be soon. We don't hold the rights to it, but it will be released um, when the production's done and the the promoters release it. But going back to that debate, one of the one of the key topics that you and Tony actually agreed on is that we're training a generation of hunters that don't know how to be outdoorsmen. Exactly. They don't know how to look for a bed. They don't know tracks. They don't know sign. They don't, you know, they're they're watching Instagram and YouTube and putting a cell camera up and going and sitting there trying to hunt. And I think the disservice to these younger generations is nobody's taking these kids out in the woods and teaching them how to be an outdoorsman. Yeah, for uh, I mean that's absolutely correct. I mean a lot of guys don't know if their tree stand is in an oak tree or a maple tree. Um, to them, deer hunting is a, an elevated blind with a corn pile in front of it with a cell camera on the corn pile, and, and that's deer hunting to them. And yeah, that's just far different than uh, how I grew up and how I hunt today. But uh, you know, speaking of Tony, the the one of the best comments or compliments I've gotten in a long time was. Right before that debate, him and I were backstage, and he told me that uh, I was the only land manager that he respected. He said he would never do a debate with anybody <laughs> else but me. And uh, he said, if you want to do this again somewhere else, he says, I'll do it with you. But I guess after it was announced that we were doing that debate, uh, some other show tried to get him to come there and debate a different land manager. He said, absolutely not. And uh, the fact that uh, a gentleman like that would think so much of me to make that comment, uh, you know, it, I mean, it meant the world to me because yeah. uh, he's been doing it longer than anybody. He's the one that started it all, and there's a lot of guys doing it today. I mean, a lot. Every year there's just more and more, and for him to single me out as the only one that he would get on stage with uh, was a real compliment. And if you go back to that weekend's podcast, he actually signed up for doing Nancy Pelosi's consulting yeah, Is he it? did. And he so absolutely did. <laughs> he he threw you two bones there. All right, so we got Mr. Ellermans, our friend Brian. Welcome tonight. Thanks for Thank coming. You. Yeah, thanks for you. Did you bring your family? Yeah, yeah, they don't go anywhere. I keep, well, I'm not allowed to leave the house without at least half of my kids. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so I changed my question after I was listening to you. You uh, reminded me of something. So one well, of my you're allowed kids. to ask two. There's okay. not a one per person quota here. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going to start with this one while I'm thinking of it. Um, one of my pet peeves, so I'm, I think I started out as just like a, uh, I'm going to call it a meat hunter, and I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of hate out in the industry for uh, new hunters that, um, that shoot a year-and-a-half-year-old buck, for example. I was curious your, your stance on... I, just, I, I, I run into guys like on public land or just, just talking all the time, that haven't shot a deer in four years, and I think if they did shoot that 130 that would be a giant to them, they want to know how to, how to blood trail it 
Um, they want to know just the mechanics and the basic things that you get from shooting a doe or two every year when you're a kid growing up. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I guarantee you've never heard me insult anyone about the deer they shoot. I think that's their choice, not mine. Um, uh, you know, I, I think we should uh, – th- there's a, a push out there to recruit hunters, and I'm totally against that. If somebody's got it in their blood, fine, but there, we don't need to be out recruiting people. Um, but if so, if a young person does want to become a hunter, I think we should welcome them into our ranks, and, and as veterans, we should do everything we can to help them be successful, and we should never be looking down on them, talking down on them. I'll tell you that I started out, I've got dink bucks on my wall in there, year and a half old bucks, that I didn't throw them in the basement, they're still in my, they're in my new game room. Um, got a special place there because they represent a stage I was at at one point in my career. And, you know, I didn't get to shooting bucks like this overnight. Um, you know, I, I was a green beginner just like anyone else, and, and I'll never forget my, my roots where I came from as a person or where I came from as a deer hunter. So I just think it's wrong to be shaming anyone over what they shoot. Social media has gotten to the point that – well, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of it. I, I talked about this when I was speaking down at uh, Tracy's event. There's there's a friend of ours that works in the outdoor industry for an outdoor company that recently went on a podcast and said, I work in the industry and I was scared to shoot a buck because yeah. of what my friends would say. And he had never shot even a, a exactly. buck over 130 exactly what I'm talking because, about. because he was embarrassed of what his friends would say. And that's that's just that's got to go. But on the other hand, there's a lot of people that's never shot a 130 that are telling the other guys what they should be doing, not shooting a 160 or letting him grow another year. It's like everybody has a stupid opinion, and none of it matters to anybody other than your journey. But to to shame someone and what they're doing as far as their journey, Don Don will talk about it tomorrow in the master class. Whatever your goal is, just stay with that goal. If it's, if it's to raise the bar every year and get better and keep moving through your journey, like you started with a meat hunter, you're in a different place now. You piddled with the recurve for a while, you know. You've, you've done different things. But when you set a goal, stick to it. Don't yeah. just cave because it's the easy thing to do. Cool. I like that answer. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I think people need to hear that. For sure. I agree. The, 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 the guys, <laughs> trust me, I hang out with this guy <laughs> a lot. And if I tried to... I mean, can you imagine what it's like to always go around with a guy that shoots booners every year? And yeah, I if know. I was waiting for one of these, yeah, I'd I mean, never if, if you try to compare yourself and try to be somebody, so the cool thing about hunting is you can never compare an exact situation. There's never two situations that are ever identical. We talked about that with Joe Miles this week. Yeah. He said the same thing. You know, there's no two of us that had the same deer hunting experience. We we didn't. There's not an even playing field. We all started on different properties. We all started with different mentors showing us the ropes. Um, we, we can't compare ourselves to each other. There's too much competition or guys creating competition in their own minds in the deer hunting world. And it's not, you know, me competing with you. It's me competing with, with the buck I'm after. And um, we need to get rid of that name, competition. Name one, other, name one other sport or activity that's like that. Right. Maybe fishing. But you had multiple people trying to hit a Roger Clemens fastball. They had that same situation. You've had different golfers play the exact same hole at Augusta. 
you know, they had the exact same conditions. They had the exact same technology. Deer hunting, nothing is ever the same between two people in two situations. Okay, another one teeing off that. What what about um, the, your social media or your, your friend that's scared to shoot a – because it's not about – everybody knows now it's not about the rack size. It's about, you know, it's got to be a five-and-a-half-year-old, right? <laughs> so what about I just passed up a four-and-a-half-year-old from this pick, you know, first time I've ever seen him. How, how can you tell – the age of a deer is there can there be a tank of a buck that has i've seen a i've seen a buck that looks like a cow with a four-point rack was uh-huh. that a six-year-old i am i don't know the answer i'm not actually teeing anything uh, up well I, I don't think you can judge a deer um just by vis- by looking at him looking at a picture um I, I said the other day in the class and a few people laughed i said whoever at qdma started the age this where they show a picture and you're supposed to age this buck I said they need their ears smacked because everybody's a professional. Yeah, on exactly. That. Everybody thinks they can look at a picture and age a deer, and you can't. You get an old boy from Georgia up here and look at a three-year-old, and he thinks it's a ten-year-old. <laughs> He's never seen a body size that big. Yeah, I, I, I get speechless. I guess I these guys are. I'm not that smart. I've just been deer hunting for a while, and I'm like they're talking about this buck age and this, and I'm like they lost me. They mm-hmm. I don't know. What they got going I think on. Well, they're it, only fooling themselves. I so. think if you put enough work and study, I do think it's possible to tell the difference between a two-year-old and a mature buck. You know, four or sure. five. But to tell what year that is, no way. Okay, I'm hogging up enough time. I got my original question <laughs> was if you take a big food plot and put a big screen around it, let's say screening like uh, Egyptian wheat or miscanthus. Good job. Um, or even like short sections of fencing, for example. Can you go too far and like almost make a cage that a, is a buck going to want to go into a... Confine it down can, too much? Yeah. I think you can. Have you ever made a... Mis- what's your biggest mistake you've ever made on land management? Uh, wow, I don't... I'd have to think about that one. Um, is there mistakes? You just learn from them and keep mm-hmm. adapting. I don't know that you technically – there's stuff that you uh, say it didn't work like I wanted to maybe. Probably but. property layout. I think uh, too many people try to micromanage. And I did to some degree when I started, tried to micromanage with small plots and things like that. And Overcomplicate it. Made it a lot more complicated than it really is. It's That's really the simple. People, the people that are walking this – property tomorrow they're gonna, are gonna get their say eyes open they're gonna say wow it's that's easy and it's very simple and now it makes sense why it works mm-hmm. i think you can pin those deer down too tight um i've seen it with mature bucks on real tight funnels that they refuse to go through a real tight pinch point and uh, that they'd rather cut across the corner of a field rather than stay in that pinch point within the woods. And I think in a, a small food plot, you could pinch them down too tight, you know, make them feel trapped in there. I don't know that we could ever, is it the word quantify or qualify? I'm not smart enough to know the definition between the two, really know the true answer on it, but I would say that properties that have more pressure, 
that's probably more apt to be a problem than say this property that has zero right. intrusion, you, you know, 30 years of not being in the sanctuary. So if you went in just to a property and day one started choking it down, no chance probably you'd have to <laughs> ease into it. Basically this property, he could probably get by with creating those pinches a whole lot more than because there's no intrusion, no pressure. I, I yeah, I think it's also it the in. buck's personality. Uh, there, there's every, every mature buck is different. They have different personalities, and I'm sure that some would waltz right in there and not think twice about it, and others wouldn't even think about it. So that, that's another thing that I think a lot of deer hunters don't recognize is the, how different one mature buck is from another one. Okay, good questions. we got a young man here. What's your favorite type of hunting blind and why? Well, the one right behind you, a 360. Uh, why? For the it's quiet and it's got good uh, a vision. You can see without having to move your head, move your chair. You, it's almost like sitting in a tree stand. Really easy to see. So I'm gonna hold the mic. I want you to go in that blind right there and open that window and see if anybody else hears it. Slide that window up. Work. Pretty cool, isn't it? All right, you got a question too. What was your biggest buck you've ever killed? My biggest buck I ever killed is this one right here. Um, one I called Mel. He scored uh, 221 gross, uh, netted 197. He's actually um, the number six all-time typical for a bow hunter in uh, all of North America. So uh, I never dreamed I would shoot a top 10 buck in the world, but uh, there's one. Thank you. Hey, Don and Terry, nice to meet you guys. How's it going, Don, Jeff? I've known for a few years. Yeah. Um, Jeff from Illinois. One of the questions I've got is we've got a tough piece of property to hunt. We've got limited access as far as moving in and out. Um, we've got uh, a pretty good chunk of ground next to us that pro provides a sanctuary basically for us. Um, my question is we did a, um, a timber harvest about five years ago took all of the mature timber off that was about 24 inches and up. Had a lot of black walnut, red oak. My question is, um, have you guys done or would you recommend a clear-cut type situation to enhance overall mm -hmm. cover so that because of the limitations of getting onto the property or getting into the property, in, in essence, create more cover? Have you done mm -hmm. it or would you recommend it? I have done it, and I would recommend it. Um, Chapter we, nine of our program tomorrow. We actually get a teaser about right now. This. Um, <laughs> we talked about this Thursday, didn't we? Mm -hmm. I know it was the last podcast about loggers, and uh, loggers want to come in and and cherry pick or high grade a timber because they make more money on certain species, and the bigger it is. And uh, I can tell you right now, I was on a property in, in Southern Illinois about a week ago, and uh, with a logger. And he was telling me that white oak right now is at an all-time high as far as price. And, and they were getting ready to cut this property, and they were going to cut every white oak that was 12 inches, you know, wow. half the size of what you were talking. And I guess they're making the, those smaller white oak trees, they make barrel staves for whiskey barrels. And I guess with the bad economy, everybody's drinking, so they need more whiskey barrels is the kind of the conclusion we came up with. But uh, – 
to get to really answer your question, yeah, whenever I, I do a plan for someone today and I'm recommending a timber harvest, I, I tell them to cut it hard, cut it really hard, and then as soon as the cut's done, come in and do a TSI cut, timber stand improvement, and remove any trees that are never going to have value for timber or wildlife. Uh, you know, species like uh, all the the honey locust, um, hackberry, things like that, um, elm. Just get them out of the way and then leave the smaller oaks, walnuts, whatever. Um, give them more space. They'll grow faster. Um, but timber's just like, it's a crop, just like corn. You, you wouldn't think of planting a corn crop and then just leaving it out in the field or, or waiting until the next spring to harvest. Uh, when it's time for harvest, you go out and you, and you bring in the crop, and timber's the same way. Um, but the, the biggest issue I see on the properties I visit is, is a logger has been there, and he's just cherry-picked the trees that make him the most money. And in the process, he's left trees of poor species um, to produce seed to, to replenish that property. So, you know, he comes in, he takes all the walnuts and all the white oaks, and what's he left? He, he's left a bunch of honey locusts and things like hackberries. that. Hackberries. Yep, hackberries is another one. And, and, and trees that are never going to have value, and they're going to produce seed and replenish that, that woods that was once a nice oak or, or walnut timber. Second part of the question is, once you do that, if you do the TSI, is there, do you have a recommendation on, do you ever introduce any plant type materials into those open areas instead of waiting for natural vegetation just to mm -hmm. take it over and you end up, you know, you're, you're looking at a three, four, five, six, seven year type of growth mm -hmm. situation? Yeah, I actually own a woodlot that did not have any trees of, of good, valuable species. Uh, a lot of soft maple was in there, uh, hackberry, elm, um, mulberry, uh, things like that that were just pretty much worthless. And uh, we just destroyed it with, with chain, just cut them trees and let them lay. And then we went in in the spring with potted trees, potted oaks, and we uh, planted them amongst those fallen treetops, put the plastic tree tubes on them, and uh, let it you know, regenerate with better um species of trees than what was there previously so yeah I, I actually have done that i'm gonna put another guy on the spot because the guy we've nicknamed mr food plot kevin thayer a good buddy he walks in the door tonight we invited him to come over i want you to talk about this a little bit do you mind we're, we're talking about we're talking about trees here if you're not following kevin thayer on uh social media uh learning about trees and different food plots and everything he's He's always growing and doing something. I'm surprised the law isn't thinking you're growing weed in your basement with as many. The neighbors do. The neighbors do. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, he he brought in he brought in some uh, trees. Talk a little bit about this one. I mean, this so, is just educational for uh -huh. for everybody. I think right now. That's an English oak. That's five months old. From the day it was put on the cone, it's five months old. Probably a little bit less than five months. And I planted some last year, um, less than this, shorter than this, and by the end of the year they were six to eight foot tall. So I think they'll be a, I think they're better than a chestnut. But these are all nuts they, that you've gone and picked up in the woods yeah, and so collected. Actually, and they were along an interstate, and every morning I used to go to work at like four in the morning, there'd be like 20 deer eating these off the street. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to stop by and see what they were. And I was like, 
amazed. I was like, these are huge acorns. And uh, the deer, there's actually a hybrid burr right beside it. They won't even touch them. They were eating all these. And the first year, I was like, well, I'm going to take some home and grow them. And then, you know, they got three foot in less than six months. I was like, this is some kind of super tree. It's like a super doe. And uh, I actually have some that are taller than this. Um, they kept for, I'm keeping, obviously, the good ones for myself. But um, it's an amazing tree, low tannin. I actually found a, a friend of mine, friend of mine turned me on to another tree that's in English that's a late dropper, so it doesn't even drop until middle of October. The problem with it is it's so low in tannin, my theory, it sprouts on the tree, and the acorns are still green, and they're sprouting, <laughs> which wow. tells me it's probably really, really low tannin. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, great tree. I just thought it was cool. We started talking about timber stand improvements and planting trees, and you had walked in with a whole box full of them that you'd grown in your basement. Hopefully not kitchen. next. Or in I your have kitchen. a thousand in my kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> You're obviously not married. Obviously not. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're not if you're not following Kevin Thayer on uh, on uh, social media, I'm telling you, you can learn a lot about all these different tree species and also good places to eat around the country. You you, you do know where to. to I earned go. it. Yeah. Yep, I earned every. So you'll you'll get inch. pictures. Actually, Chris Yates told me the other day. He said he saw a picture of you took a picture in front of a Victory Chevrolet out. Yeah, and, I, and he's like, I didn't even know he was here. I was. I forget. Oh, I was going. Uh, I was going um, paddle fishing oh, okay. in Oklahoma, and I didn't want to drive back through St. Louis. So I was like, I'm just going to go Northway, and pulled up in front of a vet and <laughs> took my picture of my truck in front of his. Well, how um, come you didn't want to go through St. This, Louis? That area right around his dealership has got to be the best urban deer hunting around. From what I saw, yeah, he's I kept that a secret from us. Yes. Well, I want to know. No why wonder you he wanted St. Louis. Uh, just not my kind of people. Yeah. <laughs> I I can attest to that. After my truck was broken in there. Last yeah. I, you know, Bunch I'd rather take the scenic route, anyways. Well, now I know why Chris Yates delivers our trucks to us. He doesn't want us to see anywhere around his dealership. Oh, that's that's the thing. Chris, if when you're listening to this, now we know why you drive our trucks all the way up here. It's probably one of the best urban areas I've seen for deer hunting. Well, you, you have done nothing but support Don and I in real world over the years. We just want to thank you. Thank uh, you, you're, Kevin. Yeah, you've I been actually, a good friend. I've got trees I was telling you earlier that I could deer hunt out of. If I would have known now what I, you know, or known then what I know now, I wouldn't have planned where I planted. <laughs> but they're big enough I could put a deer stand in now. But that's and Don gave them to me back in the days. Uh, he used to have them in Thrifty Nickel. Yeah. You remember the paper? Yeah, and that's a long time ago. I, I think you felt sorry for me. I come down there, I had an old junk S10 rusted out. And <laughs> I told him I just bought 68 acres, didn't have a house. Uh, and he loaded me up with trees. Yeah. I do have a quest, two questions. Okay. <laughs> Timber stand improvement. It drives me nuts. I see guys, the day season is over, pressuring deer, cutting trees and doing stuff. When did you like to do it? Right now. Right now. This time of year, March. Right, March. right before it greens Absolutely. up. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then if you had a known super doe on your property and she has twin buck fawns, 
Would you shoot her? It's impossible to question. answer. How do you yeah, know? How it? do you know she's a super doe? And how do you tell her from the other does? Well, Does I could tell us does. Cape and an S on her. I've got three or four does that mm-hmm. have only partial toes or to, uh, tails, mm-hmm. and I have a buck that's got a partial tail, and he's spectacular for a one-year-old, and so I know he's from my probably one of my does because it seems to be a carried trait. But um, he came back for the first time. You know, he's a year and a half now. Mm-hmm. And through the, you know, I think because he knows there's food in my place, he came back, and I was like, man, I wish I'd shot that doe that year. But. No, I think if if I knew for certain I had a super doe that was, you know, producing genetically superior, if you will, offspring, I, I would let her go. And the reason for it is I would want, hope that uh, she would have some daughters that would build a doe herd on my property that could produce better than average bucks. So I, I'd probably let her go, but th- there's just no way to ever know that. Right. Yep. Thanks, buddy. We appreciate Thanks, you. Thanks, Kevin. And we, Gingrich Tree Farms is here tonight. They so, are. They're yeah. represented by Derek. Yeah. Where is he? There he is. Everybody's <laughs> pointing different directions. I'm like, what? <laughs> So, yeah, um, you know, uh, the, the Gingrich family has been very close to us as, as personal friends uh, for a long time. You go to church with them. But also, um, if you're looking for trees, we, we talk about trees in a very big segment of tomorrow. But trees can be a vital part of your management plan. And they're going to see a lot of examples of using them, um, not only to diversify the food source, but one of your common threads that you always talk about, and that's taking and making a good stand a great stand. All right. Yeah, we'll see examples of it right here. Yep. All right, well, we're closing in on an hour here. we got a time for just a couple more questions. If you're coming, you better do it now. You're a big man. I am. <laughs> we, might, we might have to get the frame adjusted on this. If, Perfect. If, if, we, if we come up with a chasing Giants flag football team, you're my defensive end. Perfect. <laughs> That's what I used to do back in college. Okay. <laughs> um, my question is uh, in regards to culling deer. Um, as Don knows, I shot a deer this year that put on over 60 inches of antler in one year that we had. Uh, he was a familiar buck on our property. Um, I guarantee that this deer probably would have been shot if he was on uh, Don's farm. So my question to you is, um, do you believe deer mature at different periods or at different ages, I guess you could say? And um, I guess my question also is, um, you how, how do you know that you're not shooting a deer that could be a deer like this based off of kind of its maturity rate? Well, you don't know. Um, I'm simply playing the odds. And, you know, the odds that a buck that scores 150 inches at three, the odds of him making 200 inches is a whole lot better than one that scores 120 at three. Um, it, it's pretty darn rare for a buck to add 60 inches in one year. In fact, I, I don't know of a single – wild deer that's ever done that so you know you shot that unicorn and and i'm not gonna let a thousand eight pointers go just to try to match your unicorn so uh um you just got to play the odds it doesn't matter what in life you try to do someone's always going to say but this one time 
you know? We started a nonprofit foundation, and you don't understand how many. But this one time we did, you got to play money ball with these things. What you're seeing tomorrow with these uh, concepts that he's going to walk around his farm and show you, um, they're, they're ideas to implement. And will there be deviations to it? There always will be. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's the big picture you're looking for. Dr. Strickland talks about a bell curve. And we're, we're trying to manage properties to protect that right side of the bell curve where there aren't many of them. And you got to play your odds to do that. If, if you're worried about the small little deviations to the statistical analysis, you're going to be beating your head against the wall. Yeah, congratulations on that buck, Jordan. It was a giant. We'll have a statistics class afterwards. We'll get into p-values and standard <laughs> deviations and take me back to grad school again. I'm Robert from Arthur. This question is for Don. Uh, we were thinking about making a, what we call a mulching trail through our woods, through the sanctuary to try to create a pattern for the deer. What are your thoughts on that? Well, as long as you stay off of it after you make it. Um, I've done that here. I don't. I, you don't want to mow it. You don't want to maintain it. Make it. Get the deer using it, and get out and stay out, and don't come back and and do anything else. Um, I mean, it, it'll definitely work. But the the issue is the human intrusion, and those trails a lot of times encourage more human intrusion. Uh, so if you're doing it for the deer and you're willing to stay out, then yeah, it's a good idea. So would you hunt off of it? Well, I would bring it out to the edge. I wouldn't go into the woods and hunt it in the middle right. of the property, but bring it out towards the edge and definitely hunt. Make it strategic. It. Don't just put a path down the center. Make it strategic to where it's going to bring them within bow range and then hunt us offside on the downwind. Okay. Yeah, I'm Irvin from Arthur. Um, question for new people that are starting up properties wanting to manage things and they get a lot of pushback from their neighbors or um, just people who work against their agenda if they've got smaller properties people trying to hunt up against them um, what kind of advice you would have toward the negativity that you get out of trying new things wow uh, that's a good one. Uh, you know, I advise everybody to, you know, treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated. Um, some neighbors don't reciprocate that. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, extreme people require extreme measures to deal with. And um, you can't do much about the neighbors. And so you might as well try to get along with them the best you can. And, and as far as the haters go, you know, if, you, if you've got haters, that just means you're accomplishing something positive. Um, people don't hate on people that, the, that they think are below them. They, they want to hate on people that they think are above them. And, you know, at one time, I, I've shared this before, when Robin and I were first married, we were dirt poor. And there's more than once we had our power shut off or our phone shut off, and, and we seemed to get along with everybody at that time. But as things have grown over the last dec few decades, um, it seems like the the more you accomplish, the more the jealous haters come out. So um, if you've got that, that just means you're accomplishing something. You're welcome. We got a funny story about that question. We do. We, we, we've used the diversion method here recently. 
is we, we actually have a property that's been tied up as a lease for a lot of years that is a horrible hunting property that we keep and we'll take, you know, guests or whatever there, but there's nothing, there's never been anything that's a target buck for us, but people find out about that. And we just heard recently that somebody came in next door and paid stupid money for the property right next door to it. Cause they thought it was, they thought it was actually my hunting property where I'm at all the time up here that I talk about. And somebody paid absolutely stupid money just because it's beside where they think we're hunting. He's in for a big surprise when he starts hunting. And, and never post pictures on social media of deer until you kill them. That's, that's the other takeaway. Mm-hmm. Only the first time you post a picture of it, they better be holding, being hold, held by it. Hey, Don. Kevin from Ohio. Hey, Kevin. Known you for a while. Yep. I've Done been wonders property at my property. Ago. Yep. Uh, I have a question for you. You've killed bucks in October. You've killed big bucks in November. Um, kind of learned a lesson two years ago when we had that cold snap in October. I always took right place and right time to mean towards the end of the first week of November. What, what was the differentiator between the giants you've killed in October versus the ones in November? Is there a common theme? Weather? Um, or? I, well, I hunt weather fronts a lot. Um, but, uh, you know, those October bucks are on a feeding pattern. Um, they're all being shot in the evenings as they come to feed. Now, usually when I shoot them, I'm closer to their bed than where they're going to feed. But they're on that bed-to-feed pattern, whereas the November bucks are on rutting patterns. And, uh, you know, they're chasing does, running the downwind edge of, of doe bedding areas or what. Uh, you're going to see this tomorrow on a couple slides. Most of the the giant morning bucks i've killed were almost all in november the giant evening bucks i killed were almost all in october or the late season so uh yeah that that's probably the biggest thing yeah thanks kevin just a quick question on uh habitat management so 90 acre property 70 acres is planted into white oaks swamp white oaks 15 years ago how do I manage those white oaks, that unified product? How do I manage that for diversity to attract whitetails moving forward for the rest of my life? Well, I'm guessing it's probably a CRP, WRP planting or something like that. Yeah, so uh, those trees were probably planted on a 10 by 10 spacing, uh, which gives you 436 trees an acre. Um, you're going to need to thin those. Um, you're, you're going to need to uh, do a timber stand improvement, go through there and, uh, you know, cut out the ones with the poor branch structure, leave the ones with the good branch structure, give them space so that tree's crown can fill out. And, uh, you know, when a tree grows, it puts on uh, growth on the ends of its branches in the spring and summer. And then the wind will whip that tree back and forth. And in the fall, it puts on caliper on, on the trunk. So uh, the, the bigger the crown, the more it catches the wind, and the bigger the, the trunk will grow. So, um, you know, once you've, you've given that tree space um, for it to fill out the crown, it'll also put on bigger diameter trunk. So, and, so you just need to, to prune those out or, or cut them out and leave the best ones. So, I mean, they'll, you'll get them. They're probably already producing some acorns, especially the swamp white oaks. So uh, you, you'll just increase uh, acorn production, 
also when you cut them out and you provide uh, you, you know some sunlight around that tree you're going to encourage more ground cover um, woody vegetation briars saplings things like that weeds which the deer will feed on as well so uh, do an aggressive tsi cut on, on that project do you do that in sections then or do you do like how do you work through that over the years um you, you can do it in sections so that it's all not at the same stage of regrowth um, which is a good idea um, but if you're only staggering it each year one year is not going to be that much different um, I, I would do it in five year um, cycles so you know cut a section wait five years cut another section wait five years do another Good question. All right. Well, we're at the hour mark. Oh, I got something to close us out with tonight, if that's okay. We need to talk about the Illinois Deer Classic. We need to talk, go ahead. Dude, so, let's plug um, that. The first weekend in April, I think it's April first, second, and third, is the the Illinois Deer Classic is back. There's not been a deer show in Illinois for several years. Uh, the the folks that put on the Iowa Deer Classic, which is the greatest deer show on earth, they call it, and I've been there. I believe it. Uh, it's the best run show. It's, it's got the biggest deer, um, the best vendors. Uh, they're coming to Illinois to put on the first show that these guys have ever put on. And if you're an Illinois deer hunter and you want to keep a show in Illinois, you better attend. Um, my fear is that we're getting into April and the weather's going to be good and the attendance is going to be way down. Um, but I'm going to be there all three days. I'll have my three 200-inch bucks there uh, giving seminars each day. So I hope to see you there. We also, uh, Real World Wildlife Products has a dealer, um, Todd Stoll, with Whitetail Mafia Outdoors, I think is his business. He will be there with Real World Products. Um, if, you wanna, if you're placing a bigger order, you should probably call him first uh, to make sure he has it there for you. So uh, look forward to seeing everybody there. All right. If, if you want trade shows, you got to go and support. Yep. You know, the vendors don't go there unless there's people there to sell to. So it's a, it's a cycle. Without the attendees that come, it doesn't attract the vendors. Without the vendors, the show dies. I think this is going to be a pivotal point. It's how this show turns out is going to determine if they ever hold another one or if Illinois is pretty much done. All right. Well, um, in closing, I'm going to call Al Foster up here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tell him to walk up here to the microphone real quick. Oh yeah, you're coming up uh, here, buddy. I have no idea what this is about. Al. I tried to get Al to eat a hot pickled egg before the podcast tonight, and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> he probably wished he was had now, <laughs> so he'd be out. What's that? Paybacks. It's all right. I'm way out of my element. All of you all have heard about this man and uh, kind of how he took this one under his wing. To close tonight's show out, you're the only one other than Don's parents in the room that knew him when he had a mullet. So, won't, won't you close? T- he had a mullet when he, oh my goodness, that wasn't the, in a perm? Let's let Robin talk. Let's let Robin talk. Yes. <laughs> Please tell me there's pictures. I hope there's no pictures. (laughs) Hey, close tonight's show out and tell us a little bit about how far this guy's come and what he's meant to you. You, you, You're the one that kept him out of trouble many years ago. Tell tell us a little bit about that. Just let me have a little time to think about this. That's all right. We'll edit out the pause. 
when I first met Don, when he walked up to me, he was a tall, skinny farm boy with a big hat and great big ears. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, he was quiet. But once you got to know Don, he was quiet, but he was dangerous. <laughs> a lot of different ways. And we won't go into some of that stuff. But Joey, Joey knows too, but uh, Don wanted to be a deer hunter. And we talked a lot about, I guess I'd been around long enough. My dad raised me like Don's dad did to be ethical and to do all that stuff. And Don was at that point, and I knew he was at that point. He could have probably went different directions. And peer pressure, stuff like that. And uh, we had a lot of talks, and he went the right way, and he stuck with it. And I'm really proud of him. But, you know, I sit around, I've been around to quite a few of these things, and it just amazes me. And it's so much fun to come here and meet guys and listen to Don talk. And guys don't understand, <clears throat> when Don started, this place out here was a cow pasture. There was nothing here. We talked about it at work. And you're going to go around tomorrow and you're going to see this. And, and he says, keep it simple, stupid. You don't keep it simple. What you don't realize, there's 40 years of effort there. And he's done a whole lot of changing as he's grown and he's wisened up. I mean, this didn't. You know, it just didn't go boom. When you get out here, look at all the trees, look at the grasses, look at all this stuff that's out here, how it's been changed around to make it into what it is. is a Yeah, it's a deer factory, but it's huntable, but he's learned how to hunt it. You guys can all do that, but don't think it's going to happen just like that. I got a pretty yard. My backyard's, you know, I catch a lot of crap about it. Well, I'm, I like, I'm one of them guys that likes to garden. I, it's not vegetable. It's all flowers, stuff like that. I'm a woodsman. It's a woods yard. A garden, a woods, your property, it's a process. It starts here, and you're always trying to make it better. It never gets, you're never satisfied with it. It's always getting better, and it takes time. You don't put in a perennial, and it gets this big. It takes four or five years. Trees are the same. It takes forever. So look at it long term. And this is Don. I mean, right here's a guy. He's long term. And I'm not talking about his property. I'm talking about him from where he started. Because you talked about a guy like this. How can he be like he is? He raised trees 20 years. He's an expert on trees. He was a farm boy. He grew up farming. He raised deer for 25 years. He's an expert on genetics. He was into that big time. And he's consulting. He's been consulting for how many years, Don? Uh, probably about 10 now. Yeah. And it's all from what he's learned in the past. But when you talk to him, it's not about just somebody that did this, just that fast. I mean, he learned from the bottom and grew it up. And, I mean, you're talking to an expert in a whole lot of fields. And that's why you can't ask him a question that he doesn't have an answer on for deer hunting, for trees, for genetics. It's all good stuff because it's learned over time. And do your properties the same way. I mean, it's a time thing. And look at it long term. Don't look at it. It's deer hunt the same way. You're not going to kill a big buck every year the first 10 years you hunt. Not the right way. And that's where I come in. Do it the right way. And these young hunters out here, something else, get into your past. Go back to the heritage where deer hunt started. Get some of these old books. Read some of this old stuff. Get into your history. It will make your hunting so much better and so much more enjoyable, you'll understand it better. That's all I can. I can't do no more than that. <laughs> Thank you, Al. <laughs>
<laughs> well, you know, I remember the first time I walked up to Al too, and you know, I was about 18 years old. I just started a new job, and uh, you know, up until about that point, um, my dad would take vacation time from his job to take me deer hunting. And uh, my dad made it very clear that whatever we was going to do, we was going to do right. Now, it didn't matter what my interest was or my brother's interest. My parents, they had our backs. They were going to help us, but we were going to do it right. And, uh, you know, then I got my late teens, got out of the house and uh, got a job, graduated high school, got a job. And uh, I could have went either way. And I know guys, you know, my age that, that did not have um, that upbringing that, you know, that their first deer was shot illegally and and uh, their dad was supporting illegal, you know, activities in the outdoors. And, uh, you know, I just got out from under my dad's wings, and, and uh, if you will, and, you know, my mom doesn't get enough credit either. Um, I remember in school she would take me out to check traps before school and things like that, but uh, they both supported me, and then, I get out of the house and along comes Al. And, uh, you know, I, I think looking back that uh, how I got to where I'm at today is that God brought certain people into my life at a certain point where I needed them. And, and that's where Al came in. Or, or an event happened at a certain time. You know, a lot of people know the story of the, the buck here behind me. And, you know, I, I shot that deer fair and square, and, you know, all my friends know that, but there was people that accused me of wrongdoing. And uh, in the process, they really brought me more attention than I would have ever got had that not happened. And, uh, you know, it just made me more determined. When, when, when I was accused of doing wrong and I knew I, I didn't do anything wrong, I, I was determined that I was going to do it again, and the next time I was going to do it on video, and I was going to show the world and most of you know the story. It took 13 years to get it done. And for 13 years, I set out to kill another 200-inch buck on video. And I finally got it done. Um, but, you know, my parents and Al were both a big part of that. Uh, when I met Al, he kept me on the, the track that my parents had started me on. And um, a lot of our first conversations were about ethical issues. It wasn't, here's how you kill big deer. It's Here's how you kill big deer the right way. And, um, you know, those three people right over there are a big reason why I'm here today. Well, I think there's three kinds of people in your life. The jealous haters that it doesn't matter what you do or what they're going to have something bad, and I don't think any of those people are here today. The other two types of people that are in this room tonight, and that's the people that appreciate what you stand for, and they want to try to learn from you. I think that's why we're all here, including Steve and myself. And then there's another group of people that I look across that back room at your wife, Robin, who is just absolutely proud of you for being able to figure out a way to earn a living and provide for your family. And she's got a brand new, beautiful house that, you know, that your hard work over the years. She's, you know, she's been a huge supporter and never, ever held me back in any way whatsoever. You, you know, I, I see other guys that, you know, their wives, that, that they got to <laughs> One example I shared with you, you know, I sell trail cameras, and one guy wanted to make $25 payments a week for a trail camera so his wife wouldn't find out. <laughs> and here, here my wife's got to deal with me buying thousands of dollars worth of trail cameras at a time, and she doesn't even bat an eye. Oh, you, you bought another case of Reconix trail cameras. 
And, and, but she's been like that even when we didn't have much money. Um, she never held me back from chasing my dreams, and she is a huge reason as well. Um, you know, I talked about my parents and Al. Um, I knew them before I knew my wife, and, and they kept me, you know, the best they could. Uh, occasionally I would stray off the right track, but then Robin came along, and she made sure that I wasn't getting off the right track or off the, the yeah, track we, again. Those, are, those of us who are close knows who wears the pants in your house. That's, there's no, no, but the, my zipper's the, in the back. <laughs> oh, gee. Didn't see that one coming. I won't lie. But the, the, the people that are proud of you, including Robin, you know, your daughter's here with her son-in-law, Corey, your two grandsons looking up to you. But, but I look at Al sitting back there, and, and I know he's proud of you. And I know that means a lot to you. Yeah, he, so. he saved me whenever I first met him. He saved me 10 years off the learning curve. I say that all the time. Just the season before I knew Al, then I met him in the summer, talked deer hunting with him that summer and then the next season my buck sightings tripled from one season to the next they tripled because but, of what that but guy he wanted me. to make sure you were doing it the right exactly. way before he told you any of yeah. that and, and you know the other thing that he taught me was that you, you give credit where it's due if you that's one thing that really irritates me about the younger hunters in the hunting industry is, is they come up with an idea that's been discussed for 50 years and they, they try to make it out as their own idea and you listen to me and you're going to hear me mention Al Foster's name you're going to hear me mention Roger Rothar you're going to hear me mention Gene and Barry Wenzel um, guys that that came up with that. the rope scrapes a perfect example the Wenzels came up with that everybody wants to give me credit and I say no I kind of put my twist on it the Wenzels came up with that and uh, I just wish the younger generation would acknowledge where they came up with some of their stuff well, I'm going to get back to the original point I was trying to make. Okay, we got sidetracked a little bit, didn't we? Out of those three groups, there's a whole lot more of the people that are proud of you and a whole lot more people of the, that support you and believe in what you're doing than the, the haters that are out there. So well, even you. though you get fired up a little bit and <laughs> let them have their moment. I we, don't handle the haters sometimes. We, we got our moment. So uh, for everybody listening, make sure you pound that likes that like button and uh, leave us some feedback on your social media platform or on your Apple podcast, iHeartRadio or Spotify. Leave us some feedback, help others, and spread the word about the Luster's Feet Raffle. That's the best yep. thing you can do. We'll see you next week for another episode of Chasing Giants. God bless everyone. Chasing Giants has been brought to you by Osseo Camo, Via Farm Real Estate Company, 360 Hunting Blinds, Victory Chevrolet, Real World Wildlife Products, Matthews Archery, Novix Tree Stands, Gingerich Tree Farm, WildlifeFarming.com, Quiet Cat, and Vortex Optics. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another episode of Chasing Giants.